Astonishing Legends is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. A few weeks ago, just before Halloween, an article in The Guardian by Dahlia Alberge was making the rounds online. It was connected to a new book called The First Ghosts, written by Irving Finkel. The article featured a picture from a Babylonian clay tablet in the book, considered one of the first images of a ghost. It states that the picture depicts a lonely bearded spirit being led into the afterlife and eternal bliss by a lover. Researchers say it's around 3,500 years old. When you hear Ronnie Hunkler's story, you can't help but wonder, if you believe any of this at all, about how old any given ghost might be, especially a spirit that maybe was never human. It's hard to know what types of entities might be at play in legends like these, but what if they're older than we ever imagined? Thousands, or maybe tens of thousands of years old, or more. What if they predate humanity entirely? Of course, there are those among you who will say there are no ghosts, and there's no such thing as possession. Maybe you're right. While we're likely to share our opinions on what's at play, in this case tonight, we're definitely not here to tell you that you have to believe one way or the other. All we're asking is that you weigh all of the evidence, anecdotal, circumstantial, and testimonial from eyewitnesses before you start to draw any conclusions. Don't start from yes or no. Start from, tell me everything that happened. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I have never felt that he faked any of it. He was a nice kid. What happened, I can't say, but it was not a hoax. Father Walter Halloran responded to Troy Taylor when he asked if Ronnie could have faked his symptoms. Join us tonight for the final part of our series and returning special guest, Dave Glover, on the real-life story that inspired William Peter Blatty to write The Exorcist. And we're Sally House! What, what? People were expecting that, I know, so I just wanted to get it out of the way. Oh, right. Because I didn't want to disappoint anybody. Yeah. We always got to mention it. Well, you start off with a shot. There you go. And then there'll be plenty later, so pace yourself, folks. (laughs) Well, we are back, folks. That was my next line, but he said Sally House. Well, October was a blast, and we hope you enjoyed it, but it's not over yet. No, well, with Astonishing Legends, it kind of runs year-round. It does, and tonight, part three of this series still has some tricks up its sleeve. But uh, first, a couple of very brief announcements, folks. I'd like to give a heartfelt shout-out to one of our listeners who's been listening since day one, Jen Montiagudo. Jen, thanks for sticking with us all these years. It was great to meet you on Zoom the other day. And secondly, we wanted to let folks know that we posted the first of what we're calling our Behind the Curtain series on Patreon for all $5 and above Patreon. Uh, Yeah, folks, this is a blast. Essentially, it's the house cut of our talk with Richard Haddam for the Vertical Plane Part 1. And it's just over three hours long, and it's video. 
it might be too much. That's too much for people. I, I, it's a lot. I know. I understand. But you can stare at us and notice all of our weird body languages while we're doing one of these shows. It's up to you. But honestly, it was a lot of fun to do. And you get a real sense of the energy and the conversations we have with Rich. Uh, yeah. So if you're a patron and you haven't checked that out yet, please do head over there and check it out. The Behind the Curtain for Part 2 of The Vertical Plane is in post-production now and will go up within the next few weeks as well as we continue to try and enhance the Patreon experience. Mm, that's right, folks. So if you're interested in that stuff and not a patron already, just visit patreon.com slash astonishinglegends and check it out. Uh, we'll be attempting to produce these behind-the-curtain videos whenever we have a guest that's open to appearing on video during their interview. All right, last announcement, which is really just gratitude for the two special guests that have made this series possible. The, the first one is author, paranormal investigator, and podcaster Troy Taylor, who's been on the show before. Thanks again, Troy, for allowing such liberal use of your work as an anchor to the narrative structure of this series. Folks, you'll find a link to Troy's book, The Devil Came to St. Louis, at AmericanHauntingsInc.com, which is also listed in our show notes for this episode. Yeah, additionally, Troy does some pretty amazing live streams, and in fact, we're attending one ourselves on December 8th called The St. Louis Exorcism Uncensored. I mean, how, how appropriate is that? The yes. timing. It's got the timing. It's perfect. So if you want to check that out too, go to American Hauntings Inc., that's I-N-K, dot com slash live streams and get access. Again, there's a link in our show notes for this episode for that too over at our website. And the second special guest we'd like to thank is talk show radio host Dave Glover of The Dave Glover Show. He and Troy actually know each other since they're both in St. Louis, and they're both fascinated with this story. Dave joins us tonight to talk about his personal experiences in the actual house that Ronnie's exorcism started in. And he brought along some audio from a trip there, and frankly, it's bone-chilling. Okay, let's get back to St. Louis. And we were about to dive back into this story, but here's the first thing I, I want to point out. Something mm -hmm. very strange happened with part two of this series. And I'm not going to look for trouble where there isn't trouble. But yeah, it I'm is, not buying it. I'm not buying it. Something happened to part two. We went to post part two. We did all the same things we normally do 220 times prior. But this time it didn't work right. The show did not appear on Apple Podcasts. And see, sometimes it takes a little while to show up there, an hour or two, and you think, oh, well, we'll just wait. And it turned up on Spotify, it turned up on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, all those other platforms you can find us, even, even Alexa. And of course, it's at astonishinglegends.com. Every single where you time. you can find our, all of our episodes, all of the research links, if there's any photos. Since Troy gave us permission to use anything in the book, I actually uh, put a lot of photos from the book in there so you can, yes. you can see who these people are. Yeah. It'll always be on, and maybe a few hours after, that's what Scott's talking about. Once, as soon as he posts, it's usually up there within 15 minutes, let's say, right? Yeah. This time... Yeah, I was, <laughs> I had the web page done and the file ready to go. So the web page actually launched way before the iTunes file. So that was up. But yeah. weirdly, yeah, people were like, hey, where is the show? Yeah, so some folks got it and some didn't. And the indexing on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, if you're using the older version, that represents more than half of our listeners. And so they couldn't get to it. So we're sorry. That was completely out of our hands. And not only that, it took a couple of days to fix it. Audio mm. Boom, who hosts our show and helps us with our ad sales and uh, who are very good friends of ours, our contact there reached out to Apple. 
he reached out to Apple UK. They were trying to get, they couldn't figure out why it wasn't happening. Finally, they had to re-index the show. And when they did that, it popped up. But this was a couple of days later. So one of our bigger shows or the show that we put a lot of effort into for Halloween went up three days after Halloween for people on Apple products. Apologies for that. It is a little bizarre though. You know, I don't know if there's a ghost in the machine on it, but it was it was weird. It's weird that it it couldn't get going. Well, we're going to talk about coincidental happenings and what do they mean? Is it just a coincidence? How big does it have to be? Is it within context? Yeah. And a couple of things have happened to me that I've mentioned on other people's podcasts so far as a guest and a roundtable kind of thing. I think I've mentioned that show. OPP. Yes, exactly, OPP. <laughs> and then I've talked about it a little in our Legenders Lounge, because that was the, the Saturday before Halloween. I thought it was two spooky stories that have happened to me, but it could be totally coincidence. But it's so weirdly timed that it does make you wonder. And, and of course, people are thinking like, oh, Forrest just believes it's demons. It's like, well, well no, because yeah. there's nothing directly related to that. I want to find that it is not demons. I don't want any demons messing with me for any reason. Okay, right. so... It's not what I leap to first. It's like, well, this will be fun. It's how did this happen? That shouldn't have happened, but it did happen. And and coincidentally, at a very strange and meaningful moment, let's say. And I think I might tell those stories in our Christmas roundtable coming up. Oh, cool. That'll be fun. And yeah. also regarding the, the Legenders Lounge, I did want to say that's a subset of kind of like super listeners that we have in the private Facebook group, and they get together every couple of weeks through Facebook. And sometimes we're able to join them, one or the other, or both of us. We did want to give a shout out to our dear friend from there, uh, Dave Gibson, who is currently under the weather. We are rooting for you, man, and can't wait to see you back in the Legenders Lounge. So just a little bit of a what-what from us. <laughs> People are missing your memes. Yes, they are. But coming back around to this, let's talk about where we left off. When we finished up part two, the exorcism was done. And it's a fascinating story because so many times it seemed like it was over, but it kept coming back. They got that false promise. They got the false promise of it's going to be over by this time or 10 days from now or X, Y, and Z. And every time it wouldn't come and Father Bodron would go back to where he was staying and be climbing into bed and the phone would ring. He's coming back and he has to go back. And you heard Mm -hmm. those stories and they're frightening. And they kept going back and forth, but eventually it seemed like it's actually done. So now the question becomes, and this is why I love doing Astonishing Legends, we like to go past the point of just the resolution of the possession, if that's what it was. And that's where we're going to take you guys tonight in part three. So now it's time to look at the aftermath of all this and find out what happened to the parties involved. And specifically Ronnie, who wasn't even known by his real name until recently. And hats off to Troy Taylor, actually, because he knew his name for a long time, but he swore that he would not release it while Ronnie was alive. But in May of 2020, Ronnie passed away. And that's when Troy worked on a fourth edition of his book, The Devil Came to St. Louis, Uncensored, The True Story of the 1949 Exorcism, which uh, we have Signed paperbacks. Thanks, Troy. Hmm. But I also have it on the Kindle. And it's a great read. People should check it out if they're interested in this story. But one of the things that Troy talks about in there is all the rumors that surrounded what happened to Ronnie after the exorcism. Right. And whether or not this was a hoax. And he says, and this was the same thought I had, and I'm finding this out with Troy. (laughs) So when I'm like going through his books and trying to make notes for our outline, I'm like, oh, you know what? I think this. And then I'll turn the page and Troy has written the same thing. It's like, what about this? It's he's <laughs> We're literally having the same kind of investigative thought process when it comes to these stories. But the idea of it being a hoax does beg the question, if it started out as a hoax, 
would he have kept it going when it got to the intensity of a full-blown exorcism? Because that is not, as <laughs> as Troy says in his book, it's an unpleasant experience to go through an exorcism. No, for and, everyone, yeah. Yeah, unpleasant to be an understatement, but to go through it for weeks and in all these different locations and to nearly run off a cliff and all this, that is a lot of theater. If you're pretending, yeah. and if you're doing it, it, and then of course we'll address this, but if you're getting into mental health issues and there's mm -hmm. other reasons to perpetrate a hoax, maybe you're not doing it knowingly, but because you want the attention and all of that sort of thing. And I'm sure there's people out there that are saying that too. There's people from every camp. And whenever right. we cover a story like this, we hear from every camp about it. And most people in the varying camps are convinced that their way is the right way. <laughs> <laughs> considering yeah, anything else is wrong. But we like to look at everything, as everyone knows. That's what we do. It's what we've been doing for seven years. But there's a point at which you have to try to take the all of the information and make your own assessment, which is what we've always said. We, we try to put it all out there for you, and then you have to decide. And sometimes we'll tell you what we think, and sometimes we'll keep that to ourselves. But Let's get a little bit further into this. There, there were some very basic rumors, apparently, which, and I wasn't aware of this until I read it in Troy's book. There were rumors that he had committed suicide after this. And I guess there were rumors that he became an airline pilot. I don't know what the point of that is, but. Well, <laughs> no, it, it <laughs> you was certainly funny would as... be disconcerted if you found out your pilot was formerly possessed, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of aircraft around this time, people from our generation, let's say, or maybe my generation, the ongoing meme, you could say, or the ongoing gag was that such and such person that you saw and enjoyed on television as a child, they died in Vietnam. Right. That's the biggest one that I always hear. Johnny Whitaker from yeah. Family Affair died in Vietnam. Eddie Haskell or Jerry Mathers died in Vietnam. Everybody died in Vietnam. Well, sadly, yes, they lost a lot of people. It just became one of those things that people you haven't seen for a while, so that rumor gets started and it's hard to quash and it still goes on today. But yes, with such a case like this, you do wonder, well, what happened to the guy? Because that's the big question here. What we're going to look at in part three is the aftermath, because do we get any answers about what just happened? All this outrageous stuff. What was the aftermath? Did we figure out if it was a hoax? Did we figure out if it was real? Or some parts of it were real. And what happened to the guy? Did he get better? Did it ruin him? Right. How many people did this affect? That's what we're hoping for, you could say, with the epilogue of this story. Well, it turns out Ronnie Hunkler was kind of a genius. And the truth is, he wound up working for NASA in Maryland. And guess what? His name actually appears on a U.S. patent. Patent number 3,382,082, issued May 7th of 1968 for foamed in-place ceramic refractory insulating material. <laughs> He's got to work on a better brand name. I Here's the thing. I know about this because I used to be into patents. You have to have the most basic description. That's why, of course. because the word doesn't exist yet. That's why scissors, the patent for scissors are called plural cooperating blades. Because you can't say scissors, because like, what scissors? We don't know what that is. Not yet. Not right. until you patent it. Not until you patent your plural cooperating blades. So, yeah. foamed in place, ceramic refractory insulating material. So, this protects spacecraft on reentry. And there's two names on that patent. And one of them is Ronald Hunkler, the man whose childhood possession inspired the exorcist. Now, I'm not sure how Troy found out about that unless he heard it directly from Ronnie, which is possible. We actually tracked the actual patent down. We'll have it in the show notes and downloaded it. It's a, pretty fascinating if you want to read it yourself. But 
yeah, this is the foam that you see breaking off of the rockets when they go into space or the NASA rockets when they, you know, they're not, I don't think they have that so much anymore, but that's pretty amazing. When you think about that guy is in a pivotal place in two very significant parts of American culture, the horror, mm -hmm. like exorcism part, he's the center of that universe for the movie right. and the book, the exorcist. And then also the space program and the insulating foam that allowed spacecraft to uh, safely reenter the Earth's atmosphere. Well, actually, that's not all that unusual I've found, and I think a lot of people might back me up, is that people who go on to do amazing things often had something dramatic or traumatic in their childhood. Yeah. Something happened to them, and maybe that kicks you into gear in some way. And maybe that was a catalyst to something else, but you often hear that. And people who go on to do great things for whatever reason, and maybe to to finally impress the parents that never gave you the time of day and you want their respect. So you go to do amazing things or you had a traumatic childhood and to overcome that, you go on to really pour yourself into something in an attempt to get away from that. That's a little bit about what we're going to be talking about psychologically here later on. But I, I think it's interesting that, yeah, it doesn't automatically ruin you. Right. That he recovered and successfully and for the rest of his life. Yeah, and Troy even mentions that at one point, I guess he must have been married because he was divorced in 1986. He doesn't offer a lot of additional details there, which I'm guessing it might be the same reason that we that we wouldn't. It's to offer the family some privacy, but it, it seems like at least at one point he was married. But in 2004, Troy Taylor actually spoke to Ronnie, and on page 237 of the Kindle edition of his book, he says some of the following things. First, Ronnie would only agree to talk to him if he could stay anonymous, which Troy kept that promise. He, he kept his name out of any of the work that he did until Ronnie passed away. But one of the things that he told Troy was that whatever happened in 1949, it had, quote, nothing to do with him, end quote. And it's funny, when Forrest and I were going over the notes here, mm -hmm. Forrest was like, wait, did you mean he had nothing to do with it literally? And it's like, no, he, he clearly was saying that that was a different person. He couldn't recall it. He couldn't recall any of the events. He didn't, he recalled being in St. Louis. He didn't deny that it took place. He knows he was right. there, but he said that most of the memories of it, he gets from other people. So it was like yeah. a blackout for him. Mm -hmm. And he remembered being at his uncle's house. Remember Leonard and Doris Hunkler on Roanoke Drive? That's where mm -hmm. the exorcism started. But he didn't remember anything about what happened in that house. He also right. said that he never read The Exorcist mm -hmm. and he never saw the movie. He had no interest, he said. <laughs> so I don't think I would either, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Troy didn't say out and out that the call was short, but it sounded like it was kind of a brief contact situation and that Ronnie was making it clear that that was going to be the end of it, probably because he was done talking about it. But he agreed to go on the record for this moment. I always think about my Ronnie, and we used to say that I got Ronnied by the <laughs> Ronnie from Kansas, from yeah. the Delphus Ring story, who I managed to get on the phone enough to agree to an interview and then when I called back, he just didn't answer. So he ronnie me. Yeah. He didn't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> no, we understood that. Is yeah. that, God, you've been talking about it your whole lifetime. And that's why you could say, if this really happened to you, why not stand up for it? Why not admit it and stand behind what you said and, and all this? It's like, you can't imagine the amount of harassment and just people bothering you. Yeah. Yeah. That would happen if you did that. And it's going to happen anyway. He's passed on, and that's fine. As long as his relation or any lineage doesn't get bothered, I'm sure he's fine. But yeah, you, you don't want to put that out there because really, let's say 
obsessive people will hunt you down from all over the world. And we saw that with the Beth Sphere. Yes. People from all over the world were showing up. And without an address, they would just show up to the town right. and start poking around because they have to get to be part of this. They have to know the answers. They want to be interactive with this phenomenon, whatever it is. And it turns into a circus. So I totally understand why it's like, I'm going to tell you what I know. It's not much. And then we're done. The sad part of, I guess, the end of Ronnie's story was that Troy indicated in his book that when he passed away, there was no obituary. There was just a small public record notice from like a local government that was dealing with his estate. So it was kind of a quiet little departure for a guy who at one point his story was worldwide. It was an internationally famous story. So, and, and still, I guess it always will be, but he wound up passing away kind of quietly after working successfully for NASA for quite some time. So it's pretty fascinating. Well, what about the other people involved in the story? There were a lot of priests. We don't even know them all. And that's one of the fascinating things I think about Troy's take on this is like people were coming and going at the Alexian Brothers Hospital where the monks were taking care of them. There were folks that were not necessarily documented. So it's hard to know everyone that may or may not have been there beyond the ones who have been readily identified. But with regard to all the threats that the priests took from the evil voice that came forth from Ronnie when they were working on exercising the demon, if if you believe any of this at all, mm. you, you might remember there were a lot of threats about, uh, you're going to burn in hell, you'll be right. dead, 1956, you'll be with me, that 1950, and there were specific dates and all these horrible things would happen. And turned out none of that came to pass, none of it, which mm. comes back for me to the warfare of the conflict between Ronnie as the victim and the priest as the exorcist, the demon, or which I'm using that term just to put a label on whatever we're dealing with here, was literally saying whatever it could to throw people off, to make them feel uneasy, to rattle mm -hmm. people, whether or not that's some sort of internal construct of Ronnie's mental health or it's an actual spiritual possession, it was very effective in freaking people out that were trying to control it. <laughs> yeah, well, imagine if you do believe that this is possible. You, you're a Jesuit, you're a priest, you've seen, uh, or you're convinced, like the family was, that this is real. And then this thing has some kind of, let's say, at least some minor form of omniscience or omnipotence in that it can do... a pretty amazing things, at least via Ronnie, and it tells you, yes, you're going to die soon. That really gets into your head. It's yeah. Like, if anybody is going to know that, it's probably this voice, this consciousness that's coming through Ronnie. Right. And there's a history of that. And we talked about this a little bit. There's a history of premature death or strange things befalling priests that are involved in exorcisms. Right. So it's not just a threat, it's there's a record of these things happening, like we mentioned right. the priest that went to Greyfriars Kirkyard to exercise the mausoleum, and then was dead 60 days later. Well, this is a thing that we mentioned in part two, and I'll bring it up here again, is that what people don't realize, which generally I would say doesn't happen in a lot of, let's say, more mundane and typical therapy sessions with counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists, and that this was really physically, emotionally, energetically draining. It was exhausting. And that's the thing that kind of got me is that they would do these sessions, as Scott said, when they're at the rectory. And it's like, yeah, he seems okay. It's now one or two in the morning. We're going to go get some sleep because these people still have to get up. We did talk about that, you know, get up early and, and some were studying, some had uh, chores and their usual business. 
And then as soon as they get home, they get another call. Like, nope, it started back up again. And then they're back over at three in the morning. And then they're up at six or 5.30 to do their regular day. And they can't really tell anybody about it. It's, it's tremendously exhausting. And I'll put this out there to people. If you've ever been near somebody like a stranger in public who's having an episode, and I have been a few times, I don't know why it seems to, that kind of stuff. There might be a crowd and somebody's acting up and they zero in on me. I don't know why that happens. That happened once when Scott and I and a couple other friends were at a local pub here. Of course, the the person who's, let's say, in an altered condition singles me out and then comes over, and I'm the person that they want to engage with. I'm not sure why that happens. But when somebody's really going off, you could say, it's draining in a very strange way. It's like an energy vampire of sorts in that because you're on your guard, you don't know if this person's going to flip out, become violent what they're going to do if if the yelling is just one part of it. It's exhausting being around that. And then when you get yourself extracted from that, you feel drained. At least the few times, unfortunately, that I've, I've been witness to that where somebody was having an episode, it's exhausting to be around. And it's also disturbing. And yeah. this is the epitome of being disturbing and exhausting. Well, after this all went down, the archdiocese put together apparently a very thorough report. And Father John Nicola, who we mentioned early on as being involved in this, he saw the report and he said that it determined that it, the case was a, quote, genuine demonic possession, end quote. And on top of that, that's where the figure comes from, that 48 people actually signed a document stating that they had witnessed paranormal phenomena. That's fathers, doctors, assistants, all the folks that they could get to sign it that's four dozen people saying that they right. felt that this was a paranormal situation. Right. Aside from those folks, you have to remember when they were at the rectory, they got other Jesuits who were just living there at the floor to come to the, the open door to pray. Right. Because, of course, the more people praying, they believe, is uh, a lot more powerful. So there was a lot of people who just looked into the room and saw crazy stuff happening. And they were a part of it and a witness to it. And they were actively praying, but they weren't physically in the room because that got violent and, and messy at times. So, But they were outside. They, a lot of people were there. It wasn't just the, the four people. Well, Father Bodern, or Bowdern, I've heard it both ways, he never spoke of the case his entire life. He kept that secret his whole life publicly, never mentioned it. There's actually rumors, according to Troy Taylor, that he wound up performing another exorcism, like right around then, like 1950 or 51 or something like that. There's no records of this one beyond uh, some mention of an initial investigation into a case, which makes me wonder if there's another story like Ronnie's that's never, ever been told, which is crazy when you think about it. Those stories have to be out there. They have to be out oh, there yeah. of other ones. Ronnie's is the one that saw the light of day. Well, let's talk a little bit about what happened with Father Walter Halloran, who, thanks to Dave Glover, we had some audio clips from, because Dave had interviewed him back in the year 2000, if I did the math right there on that audio. And Dave is actually going to be joining us again tonight with some really juicy stuff here mm. later on. So stay tuned for that. But Father Halloran was ordained just a few years after Ronnie's case in 1954. By 1956, he was teaching. He taught history at Marquette University. Then he joined the U.S. Army and went to Germany as a paratrooper at the age of 48. Which is amazing. Yeah, know. which is pretty amazing. <laughs> then he went to Vietnam in 1969, and while he was there, he earned two bronze stars. Also very impressive. Yes, yeah. very impressive. No slouch, for sure. 1971, 
He left the Army, and he returned to St. Louis University and became the Assistant Director of Campus Ministry. Well, I was talking on text with a friend of mine who lives in California, somebody that my wife and I have known for a long, long time, who is Catholic and is from the St. Louis area, and his family is very much connected to the community there and still is, and he had something to say about the priests involved in this case. Listen to some of these texts that he sent me. Anyway, mom and dad were students at St. Louis University when it happened. They knew something very unusual was going on, but they weren't sure what. They befriended many Jesuit priests while they were there. Later, when we came along, meaning when he and his siblings were born, they would invite priest friends to come to family parties because priests led lonely lives. Bowdern was the uncle of mom's good friend. I believe he came to one of the family parties. I would have been very young, so I can't be sure I met him, but I think so. I certainly met Halloran. Halloran was a very sad case with a better ending. He was a young, very strong scholastic studying to be a priest when it happened. They asked him to help out because he was very strong and they expected it to get violent. He performed very well, but it messed him up, my friend said. So eventually, they assigned him our high school which was also Jesuit-run. So to be clear, my friend went to a Jesuit high school where Father Halloran was. We didn't know his history, but he had no real responsibilities. We assumed him to be an alcoholic. He didn't teach. He held all of it in. But finally, he was allowed to talk about it. He stopped drinking and found peace before he died. Really spooky stuff, that's what my friend said. Hmm. By the way, this guy I've known for decades... He's not prone. We didn't have a lot of paranormal conversations over those years. So when he says <laughs> no, really spooky no. stuff, it carries a little gravity with me Right, when it comes from him. You know, weirdly, I know him through an other indirect connection as well. Uh-huh. This is totally indirect between you and me. Yeah. One of his very good friends growing up worked at one of the companies that I worked at. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a weird connection. Yeah. So it was odd. Yeah. But there you go. There's another St. Louis connection and it's all connected. Everything is connected. We're all connected. Look at that. We're connected to this guy who is remaining anonymous, if you can't tell by now. Right. Anyway, he, he went on to say, I'm just happy that he had a peaceful ending which is when he most likely did the interview, because I had been telling him how Mm -hmm. Dave Glover had that interview, which would have been 2000. And then again, Troy Taylor interviewed him in 2005, and he passed away shortly after that. So I don't know for sure he was alcoholic, but strongly suspected. He was barely functional. I studied music at the St. Louis University building where he was kept briefly. Halloween tradition at SLU was to try to get into that wing, but it was locked tight. So apparently Mm -hmm. everybody was trying to get in there because I guess he used to stay there. What's the point of that? To, to uh, I don't know. See if he was spooky. Spooked by him? Or I don't know. I don't some know. of it would rub off? I don't know. What's interesting here is, I feel like we covered somewhere, I can't remember if it was from Troy or some other angle on this, where somebody was like, no, he was okay. Didn't really yeah. affect him. Or maybe Dave asked him that question. And I think Dave asked it to him. And Dave said, right. how did you feel? You know, how do you feel this has affected your life? Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, no, I'm fine. But what my friend is saying here, who interacted with Halloran, was like, he was not fine. He was significantly affected by the whole thing. Hi, I'm Jupson. And if there are any ghosts out there, please contact me. Now back to Astonishing Legends. 
So then let's come back around to Troy's observations on Halloran here. He talks about, in the latter part of his book, how Halloran had told some lies. One lie that he told was that Ronnie, after the exorcism, had become a priest. He didn't use his real name, but he said, mm -hmm. oh, no, he went on to become a priest. Then there were sometimes conflicting reports about some of the details of the exorcism. He would say, no, he didn't necessarily have any unnatural strength for a kid of his age. It wasn't that unusual. Mm -hmm. But then he would also say he did escape several grown men routinely, including him. Yeah. He has never gone back or contradicted the fact that the bed lifted off the ground or that the holy water flew across the room from the top of a piece of furniture with no one near it. Right. So that's something that he's consistent on. Flew across the room and smashed against a wall. Right. Narrowly missing his head. Halloran's right. head. Yeah. But when Troy talked to him in 2005, he describes him in his book as warm, genuine, and friendly. And one of the things Troy asked was whether or not it was real, whether this case of possession mm -hmm. was real. Listen to this excerpt from Troy's book. Force, I want to let you read this. I've been talking too much. It's from pages 243 and 244 of the Kindle edition of The Devil Came to St. Louis, the uncensored true story of the 1949 exorcism. I can't say whether or not it was valid. At one time, I felt more strongly in one way than another, but I simply don't know. I have never been convinced that it fits all the criteria of a true possession, but there was something going on there that I could not explain. For this reason and others, I have withheld judgment on the matter. Father Bodern always believed in the case, but I have never been comfortable with any decision. I asked Father Halloran whether he believed Ronnie could have faked his symptoms. His answer to that was without doubt. No, he replied. I have never felt that he faked any of it. He was a nice kid. What happened, I can't say, but it was not a hoax. Do you think that it could have been caused by a mental illness? I asked him. Perhaps, Father Halloran replied. I've always thought that taken one at a time, many of the incidents could be explained as being psychosomatic. But the dilemma comes when you put them all together. I don't know if a mental illness can explain all of that. Shortly after my interviews with Father Halloran on March 1st, 2005, I learned that he passed away from cancer at the age of 83. Halloran makes a really good point there. The dilemma comes when you put them all together. And that comes up right. again and again when people are looking at this case and looking at the story. When you talk to the psychologists, you talk to the doctors, you talk to the people that are looking at the whole of it. And it's like, oh, well, yes, maybe this component of it matches Tourette's syndrome. This component of it matches epilepsy. This component of it matches some other mental illness, dissociative identity disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. We'll be talking about all of this in a little bit. But the point is... All of those things independently might account for some of the actions or things that took place, but to have it all happen concurrently and then to add into that the telekinetics or the levitating bed or the, right. you know, the things flying across the room, yeah. the, the poltergeist activity, the poltergeist activity, that kind of stuff. When you put all that together, it starts to get harder and harder to believe in the mundane explanations. Well, that's a good point, Scott, in that I believe, as we're going to see later on and talk about, the position of exorcists is that, yes, they obviously they believe that people could have a psychotic mental break or a mental illness condition. That has to be considered. But it's not one or the other. They're not mutually exclusive. A person could have a mental illness, but there could also be a spiritual, let's say, possession or incursion or problem 
and they could be acting together. So their benchmark is taken all together, there has to be an excess of the spiritual part. And in this case, yeah, I would say, as observed by everybody, it would be the telekinesis or the poltergeist activity that cannot be denied. How do you explain that away? So anyway, we're going to talk about that in the end of our conclusions. But for right now, what I like about Father Halloran is he's, I think he's being honest. I think he's saying, I don't know. I don't think he was faking. So that crosses that off the list is that it's all just a big hoax and a really difficult one to keep going. That was exhausting and devastating for everybody. Although we know some people do like attention and they don't care if it's good or bad. It doesn't mean that uh, it was horrible. That's not what he wanted. But in this case, Father Halloran is saying, I don't think he faked it, but was he truly possessed? I can't really say. But when you look back on it, there's things that you can't easily explain and they have to be questioned. And so I, I liked his response is what I'm saying. Yeah, I did too. And I like having the context of my friend having known him personally and gone to the high school where he was at, combined with Dave Glover's interview and also with Troy's interview a few years later, we're getting a full picture here of how everything comes together and Halloran being this pivotal figure. But the other thing to remember about Halloran is, you know what? He was only at the house. He never went to the hospital when mm -hmm. Ronnie got moved to the Alexian Brothers Hospital. Which brings us to our next point here. Troy thought that Halloran was the last living witness, but there was one more, the Alexian monk, Brother Greg Howinski. Brother Howinski, or Brother Greg, was present for nearly everything at the Alexian Brothers Hospital referred to in part two of this series. We talked about the fact that Ronnie went to the Alexian Brothers Hospital, but I didn't really, I don't think we touched on who the Alexian Brothers were. I took this from the, their website, alexianbrothers.org, today in the About Us. I wanted to read this. The Congregation of Alexian Brothers is a lay apostolic Catholic order whose brothers, bound together by religious vows, dedicate themselves primarily to live in community and to participate in the ministry of healing in the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. For almost 800 years, the Alexian brothers have cared for the sick, the aged, the unloved, the unwanted, the poor, and the dying. The basic Judeo-Christian beliefs that inspired the founders of this Catholic religious congregation continue to sustain its ministry today. So that gives you a little bit of background on this group of monks who are in the business of taking care of people, which fits with the hospital. So in 2014, Troy was asked to participate in a documentary by the Discovery Channel about this case. And during the course of that, I guess Brother Greg had also been involved. And he reached out through whatever channels and said, I want to talk to Troy Taylor. So they connected him. Brother Greg was apparently unwell and knew that he was dying and he wanted to tell his story. So here's what's interesting. In, at this point in the book, Troy actually says before he spoke to Brother Greg that he personally had not decided if he even believed in possession or the possibility of it. He totally believed that something had happened to Ronnie, but he wasn't sure what. So when he met with Brother Greg, uh, P.S., I want to give a quick shout out to our favorite monk and listener, <laughs> Franciscan <laughs> priest friar, Brother Richard. Yay! We're still yes. hoping to come visit you in Ireland at some point. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, friend of ours on Twitter. I digress. So Brother Greg sits down with Troy and details what he saw and experienced. And there were a lot of strange events. Get Troy's book for more details on this, but listen to this brief excerpt from page 245 of the Kindle edition. 
The first night that I went up, the boy was lying in bed. His eyes were closed tight. He reacted differently when the possession took place. Every now and then, the devil, using the boy's voice, would curse and swear. Brother Greg took over some of the duties of Walter Halloran, helping to keep Ronnie on the bed as the exorcism took place. Ronnie thrashed about. Now, just I want to quickly, as an aside, remind people, Walter Halloran was not present at the hospital. So yeah. it sounds like Brother Greg, maybe, I don't know if he was a large man or not, but it sounds like he became the heavy that was going to try and help mm. control Ronnie in this situation. So keep in mind that Halloran was not here to witness any of this, so he could not confirm or deny that this following section that we're about to share with you took place. Brother Greg took over some of the duties of Walter Halloran, helping to keep Ronnie on the bed as the exorcism took place. Ronnie thrashed about, flipping his arms and legs from side to side. One night, he explained, quote, I was at the foot of the bed and had my arms crossed over and anchored to his knee. I was frightened, and I just saw something unbelievable. You could feel the powers of the devil. I saw the boy's body levitate, end quote. Just as I had asked Father Halloran more than a decade before, and this is Troy speaking, I asked Brother Greg if he believed that it was possible that the whole thing had been a hoax. He answered, no way. Anybody with common sense walking in and seeing that knows that it couldn't be faked, end quote. Mm. So not too long after this, Brother Greg passed away. But one of the things that Troy details here is that this is a, a truly pious man. This guy spent his whole life helping the sick and unwanted, just like their creed says. There was nothing that he stood to gain by sharing this story before he passed away, other than to tell the world that evil is real and that it can be real, and to explain that he saw Ronnie levitate. Walter Halloran never saw him levitate. He saw the bed levitate, but what Brother Greg is saying is that he saw Ronnie levitate while he was trying to hold him down, Yeah, which I think is really interesting. But here's the other thing. I got a sense from Troy's book that for him, this was the Bob Gimlin of this story for him, because <laughs> yeah. that was the thing for us and for folks that don't know, and for people who are sick of us bringing it up, because our monumental 17,000 part series on the Patterson-Gimlin film, the most famous Bigfoot film ever, when we met Bob Gimlin, who was there and he told the story, you found him to be a very credible, sincere person. And it was hard right. not to believe that what he experienced, for him anyway, was definitely a true and real experience when he saw that Bigfoot crossing that creek uh, in 1967. It seemed to me, because what Troy is describing here is like the experience of talking to Brother Greg seemed to have that same sort of effect on him. It was a very mm -hmm. palpably real and sincere experience that affected how he looked at this story. And I find that the parallel of the investigation very interesting because we've been there. Forrest, you and I have been there. We've been through that thing mm -hmm. where you're like, you're investigating it and you think, well, there's this and that. And you're weighing the, you're like Lady Justice, weighing the scales. <laughs> Is it real? Is it not real? I don't know. And then along comes a person that just tells you an anecdote, but you can just, mm -hmm. when you're looking in that person's eyes, you know that they're telling you something real. It right. feels like an honest, real piece of information. And when you take that in conjunction with everything you've already learned, sometimes that pushes you over the edge of belief or disbelief. It can go yeah. either way. Because you can get a witness like that that will say, look, I can confirm that the, we threw that plate up in the air, it had a string on it, and we made it look like a UFO. <laughs> and you're like, 
you know what? I believe you. I believe the guy who took the big giant penguin feet and went on the beach. Brilliant, by the way. <laughs> so they can go either way. I'm not saying it only goes this way, but I like no. that in this case, it feels like for Troy, that's like, hmm, you know, it's hard not to think that something real was happening here that might have been, because then comes the next question. Let's say you get to the point now where you're, and I know it's funny, uh, lately people have been telling me that we went from Scully and Mulder to... Uh, Mulder and Mulder, but <laughs> really, because, where did I, where did I yeah, see that? Some friend yeah. of mine told me that, but because of, oh, because of my Sally house experience, but I want to make something clear. It's like, yes, I'm more open to believing that paranormal things can happen, but that doesn't mean I'm still not approaching these stories with a skeptical mm -hmm. viewpoint in the bigger picture. So when I look at this story, I think the same thing, you know, is it a hoax? But then you have this multitude of witnesses. It's kind of like the Japanese capture theory with Amelia Earhart, right. which is on its surface, it's there's parts of it that seem like a long shot, except there's over a hundred people that say they saw her on the island of Saipan. That's a over lot 200. of people. Over 200. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. But here's the thing is that even with our uh, expanded perspectives, another great podcast. Yes, yes. Great show. Turn us on to, show. But it, with our expanded perspectives, you could say, I don't see a problem because we don't edit by omission. We're not leaving things out because we don't believe them. Right. Now, we may not expound on them or pontificate as much about those theories, but as I've said before, I think in maybe in part one, I can't even remember now, but we will present them as many as we can find and think that are, are valid and should be considered. And some of the sillier ones we may not mention, but the ones that seem to be generally held to be uh, credible in some way, we'll, we will present and let you decide. But of course, we're going to tell you what we think. And what's interesting is that when you talk about belief and talking to people, that's all we have. Everything about everything that we've ever said, discussed, researched, put on the show, it comes down to personal belief. Do you believe the facts? Do you believe us? Do you believe your best friend who told you something weird had happened? And you may or may not, you may just think that, well, they're, they're a very honest person and I know they wouldn't intentionally lie to me, but I just think I don't believe in what they're telling me. I don't believe that that's possible. They're probably just mistaken. So I'm not going to say, you know, they're calling them a liar to their face. Of course, they're one of my best friends, but I'll just leave it as they probably didn't understand or relay exactly what they saw and you leave it there. When you talk to other people, like I was going to say, it goes either way. You could say like, well, I was there and I saw this Bigfoot and it's like, look, we spent a couple hours with this person. He's as believable as anybody else. And it's the same thing, how people take a personality and accept it or not. And what kind of surprised us was the reaction generally of people who have heard Terry Lovelace. There's something about him. It's just, I think he's telling the truth. I think there's something there. And that's the point where it gets chilling. Yeah. If a, even a little tiny bit of that is true, that's monumental and it's frightening. So it's a very personal thing. Like I said, everything that we're talking about here and what you experience is very personal. And I do wonder, I was going to save this talk and maybe we'll talk about later in our final conclusions, was when you see this in person, how would you react? You don't know because it's so off the charts you don't know how you would take it. It's like, well, there you go. That kid's faking it. You know, he learned to do those dance moves, those break dance moves, and he ran up the wall and did a flip. Yeah. That's my point about this, is that you see something that's, okay, that's not just regular physics. And when somebody levitates off the bed, you know the difference between a, a magic act that you're seeing from a distance and when you're trying to hold the person down. Yeah. That's got to be impactful, to say the least. That's all I'm mentioning here is that that's another level of belief that's easy for you to dismiss or poo-poo because you weren't there. 
Yeah, and I, I guess the hard part is with these witnesses, when you start thinking about confirmation bias, we don't have any witnesses coming away from it. And there's one thing, and I think this was in Troy's book somewhere, or there might have been some other source we came mm -hmm. across, but I think it was in Troy's book, where he said the Jesuits were considered the most skeptical division of the Catholic, <laughs> of the groups well, of Catholic. Yeah, they're very scholarly, very much very educators. scholarly and almost too skeptical. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what they're, they've been accused of, I guess. But we don't have, this is something, and I want to point this out because you know, people might be, some people might be saying this at home, folks that are agnostic or atheists might be saying, where is the atheist or the agnostic or the mm -hmm. someone from a different religion that's outside, right. you know, that's not a non-Christian religion that witnessed any of this. And of course, they weren't invited to be around it. You know, they're going to the Alexian Brothers Hospital that's obviously filled with Catholics. He doesn't seem like he was in an environment where folks that didn't have that theology at the heart of their core belief system were able to witness whatever Ronnie was going through. So there's there's some question as to whether or not everything that took place always came through that filter. That's true. I will say that, well, because the nature of it is that you don't go to the uh, the atheist's hospital. Right. But on the other hand, that's what people have said is like, why didn't they take him to any psychologist or psychiatrist? Well, they did. Yeah. They initially tried that. And as we said in part one, the physician said, well, you know, he's a little cranky, but I don't see anything physically wrong with him. And the psychologist said, yeah, he's a, you know, he's a little uh, ill-tempered, but they could find really nothing wrong with the kid. So you go to a location where they're going to try something according to their beliefs and practices that may or may not work, but at least it's something. It's not just hurling pharmaceuticals at you. So that's the crux of the story. There's a lot more detail in Troy Taylor's book, but now you've heard a lot of what went down and what the witnesses had to say. Now, Troy laid out his theories, just as we would have done on shows on similar topics on this, like our series, The Devil and Annalisa Michel. In his book, Troy mentions the following possibilities. He says, could it be a hoax? Could it be paranormal activity? Could it be hysteria? Could it be mental illness? We're going to add one new item to this list. It's something we've talked about in the past on our show, which is anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. This is a tricky illness because it's it's characterized as both an autoimmune disorder and a psychiatric one. A strong reminder here, we're not mental health professionals or any kind of health professionals. This is an entertainment podcast, <laughs> I just want to say. And we're not even professional about that. Yeah, so, we're not even yeah. professional at that. And We've done our best, though, to try and understand and explain these possibilities. And based on a few recent papers and studies about anti-NMDA receptor or what is now sometimes called anti-NMDAR encephalitis, it has to be treated both as a physical illness and a psychiatric illness. We have a link to some papers on it, so just go to astonishinglegends.com, find the webpage for this episode, and you'll see that. But here's the thing to remember. This was an unknown illness until 2007, which is relatively recently. We've already covered it extensively on our show, and in fact, this is a moment to put something straight about the fact that it made it onto the air with us. When we were covering the possession of Annalisa Michel, one of our researchers in the Astonishing Research Corps mentioned the idea of anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. 
That researcher was Stephanie Schmidt. Now, Stephanie had heard it mentioned in passing on an episode of the podcast, My Favorite Murder, with Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. Stephanie had indicated that they were talking about the Annalisa Michel case and that they had mentioned a book in passing called Brain on Fire. This is an amazing book. It was written by Susan Cahalan. She actually even did a TED Talk on it. We had a link to that and some other appearances by her. And by the way, My Favorite Murder, I can't imagine anyone hasn't heard of it. It's the hit true crime comedy podcast hosted by Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. So here's the thing about anti-NMDAR encephalitis. Symptomatically, it could absolutely convince the sufferer in the right circumstances that they were possessed. However, it can also be misconstrued as schizophrenia. But Susanna Cahalan will tell you that she did not have a psychiatric condition. She had anti-NMDAR encephalitis. Now, one of the things she talks about in her TED Talk is that she had several of the symptoms associated with schizophrenia. And she was the right age for the usual onset of that in her early 20s. One of those symptoms was disorganized speech. Put that one in your notebooks because we're going to come back to it. Anyway, the point is, this form of encephalitis should be added to the list anytime you're looking at a potential case that is later identified as a possession. One of the things that I found fascinating that I guess they do now as a regular test, and I don't know who figured this out, but just to see if you may have something like this is they have you draw a clock and oh, then that's draw right. I the numbers about this. on the clock. And what's strange is people will bunch up all the numbers on one side. I don't think they realize they're doing it. That's right. That's right. pun here, but that, that blows my mind. It's just that there's something there that it's in your head as being correct. We all know what the clock face looks like, but it doesn't come out right. No. And when you watch the TED Talk with Susanna talking about what she went through during this, she talks a little bit about being in the hospital bed and she plays video from it where she's mm -hmm. like looking up at the TV and she sees herself on the TV and she's thinking the paparazzi is outside her hospital room and it's all imagined. But it's not totally imagined because she is a news journalist. It makes sense that she might be on TV, but in that case, she wasn't. But I want to get back to setting the record straight about something that happened on our show, though. We've mm -hmm. covered it extensively in the past in our episode, Sarah and the Spider Woman, where a listener contacted us to tell us that when we mentioned the possibility on the show in the Annalisa Michel case, that there might be anti-receptor NMDA encephalitis, her doctors actually wound up diagnosing her with that, and she was able to receive treatment that she thinks saved her life. So we want to make it abundantly clear that we're able to trace a life-saving chain of events here. It starts with my favorite murder mentioning the possibility <laughs> of anti-NMDAR encephalitis and Susanna Cahalan's book on their show, which one of our researchers, Stephanie Schmidt, heard when listening to their podcast. Stephanie, in turn, mentioned it when we were covering the story as well, and when we drilled down on it and read Susanna's book, we incorporated it into our episodes on Annalisa. Then, one of our listeners in the UK, a woman named Sarah, contacted us to tell us that she had been suffering from this horrific condition, and after having heard about this form of encephalitis on our show, she told her doctors about it, and they were able to identify her as having it. And in turn, they were able to treat her, and according to her, save her life. Now, we've mentioned this on the show before, but I, I only went back to follow the chain of events and working on the exorcist topic here and Ronnie's case. So we just wanted to give credit where credit is due 
to Karen and Georgia at My Favorite Murder, and then to Stephanie Schmidt for putting it in the mix in our own research because we might not have come across it otherwise and Sarah might never have heard about it. We've not met Karen and Georgia and don't mean to imply we have, but we follow My Favorite Murder on Twitter. They don't follow us, so oh, uh, no. whatever on that. I don't know. <laughs> they're not hollow. I wouldn't. <laughs> they're not hardly following anyone, so I don't feel so bad, but also they're way bigger than us. Anyway, I digress. Anti-NMDAR encephalitis can feel like a mental health disorder, but it's now considered an autoimmune disorder that can also present mental health symptoms. Now, according to the papers we found, best practices are still being established for diagnosing and treating it. It can be related to a tumor, for example. That said, dissociative identity disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder, both these conditions can uh, seem to be predominantly described as mental health disorders, are thought by some to be potentially brought about by an infection as well, like the anti-receptor NMDA encephalitis. In some cases, but not all. Anyway, this is getting fairly complex, but we wanted to try and differentiate as much as we could between the possibilities of obsessive-compulsive disorder and dissociative identity disorder and even anti-NMDAR encephalitis because they all present symptoms that are similar to possession if they're left unchecked. But in the case of OCD and DID, the two that I just mentioned, they don't necessarily have associated physical symptoms, like the possible presence of a tumor, for example. Please keep in mind, I only barely know what I'm talking about here, and I'm ready for the flurry of emails about all the terms I'm incorrectly <laughs> using interchangeably, but hopefully it's clear. I don't know. I'm going to come back to a paper that someone posted in our research group about anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis in psychiatry. This was written by uh, Matthew Kaiser and Joseph Dalmau and appeared in the Current Psychiatry Reviews, Volume 7, Issue 3 of 2011. I want to read the excerpt from this. This complex disorder requires sustained management and coordination of care between multiple medical specialties. The involvement of psychiatrists at many phases of diseases suggests a familiarity with the syndrome to be essential, particularly early on when appropriate diagnosis might help anticipate neurologic decompensation. Now, I didn't know what decompensation meant there. I thought it might meant taking money out of your wallet, but I had to look it up. <laughs> oh, it says here, mm -hmm. in psychiatry, decompensation is the deterioration of mental health in a patient with previously well-managed psychological problems, leading to a diminished ability to think and carry on daily activities. So getting back to that description, a few retrospectively evaluated cases have been described with an apparently milder form of the disorder that is purely psychiatry in nature, suggesting that anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis might sometimes be misdiagnosed as a primary psychiatric illness. The point of sharing all this information is to say that this particular condition can create an impression of possession. Folks that suffer from this, especially Sarah, who has been on our show in the past, We'll talk about hallucinations, and that's what the spider woman is about. She saw a spider woman, and all that's related to this idea that is this person possessed or not, but still you're dealing with internal experiences versus external experiences. When does what the patient is experiencing go beyond their body and, and what, what's happening to them? When do other people start to witness things that don't make sense? Exactly. That's my point here. 
And this is what I've learned from all this and people who have some of these conditions that are able to be articulate and reporting about them and letting us know. And that one, you have to keep in mind as we go through, we're going to talk about this a little bit here, that it's a very nebulous science, psychiatry, psychology, mental health issues and disorders, because they can take PET scans, they can do EEGs, they can see if there's something that's that's physical, but they can't open up your head to see your thoughts yet. That realm belongs to the patient and what they're experiencing and are able to describe. And as we've seen here, if it's very extreme, it's really difficult to do that. So your doctors don't really know what's going on with you. It's as it's been described to me, a lot of it is handled with pharmaceuticals and you just keep trying things in different combinations to see what works. And we're going to get to a phrase that I, I really enjoyed later from a friend of ours saying that you get to a point, perhaps, if you're lucky, where your brain is happy that lets you continue to get treatment and further medication and hopefully some relief from this. But the difference here, what you're saying is that there is a physical component and a mental component, and they may work in conjunction for a negative effect here or not at all, or it could be one thing, could be several things. It's, it's really hard to see what's going on. But if it's physical, like you have an infection, well, people can see that. Your antibody count, your T cells, I guess, is high. You have a fever. They can see that something's not right with you physically. But the other stuff is naked to the eye of your physician. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really hard to diagnose and they there's a lot of guesswork and there's a lot of stuff they still don't know about it. As advanced as we are, as far as we've come from 1949 to currently 2021, there's still a lot of unknowns. We've come a long way and there's a lot of labels and as our, our friend said, a lot of letters they threw at you. Pure OCD. OCD with psychotic features. There's so many levels and definitions. And a lot of them are just kind of guessing, educated guesses, but guessing. Yeah, that's right. And I, I want to double back here to some of the stuff that Troy Taylor said in his book. It was observations about possible explanations for this. This is excluding the encephalitis we just talked about. One thing he talked about was the possibility of a hoax. Frankly, I feel like that's unlikely based on all the circumstances. And if it was one, especially one that was conspiratorial in nature, the number of people involved in perpetrating it becomes astronomical, and that makes it implausible. And if it was Ronnie alone, how do you explain that Father Halloran saw a bottle fly across a room unaided by human hands, or a bed levitate, or Brother Greg, who saw Ronnie himself levitate? Are they both lying? Were they both confused? What about Reverend Scholes, who saw the blanket pallet Ronnie was sleeping on at his house move across the floor without Ronnie moving at all, or even the corners scrunching up? Or the large chairs that several witnesses saw in multiple locations dump Ronnie onto the floor in ways that larger, stronger adults could not emulate when they tried to make that happen themselves. It, it just doesn't track for me. But there was another possibility that Taylor put forth, uh, the idea of paranormal activity, which, and this is interesting because apparently this is separate from the idea of being possessed. Uh, coming back to Reverend Schultz, Taylor reminds us that Reverend Schultz didn't think Ronnie was possessed. His thought was, nope, not possessed. Instead, he's using telekinetic powers to move things with his mind. 
He even tried to get J.B. Ryan involved, but the opportunity was missed because by the time Ryan got to Maryland, where Ronnie was at at that point, he had already been moved to St. Louis. So Ryan didn't get a chance to study it, which I would love to have seen what Ryan would have observed. Well, I, I think from my recollection that they got there because J.B. Ryan and his wife Louisa made the long trip to go see this because it was extraordinary. But when they got there, he wasn't exhibiting any of the symptoms yet. Okay, so that's different from what I found. I found, and I can't remember where I looked this up, but it, it was suggested that he had already left to St. Louis, but you're saying that he uh, got there and nothing happened, which I now remember that you mentioned in one of the earlier parts as well. Yeah, I, I read that in Troy's book, and, yeah. and again, I'm not splitting hairs here, but yeah. yeah, I remember because I made the joke way back in part one that it's like taking your car to the mechanic. Yes. It's like, it's making this knocking noise. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, okay, we'll check it out. They get in the car, they don't hear anything. And then, of course, it happens on the drive home when you're by yourself. That has happened to me a handful of times. It's, yeah, Murphy's Law, whatever it is. So he gets there with his wife to observe this because even if it is just telekinetic psychokinesis, a bit of uh, poltergeist activity from this young person who may be a little agitated or disturbed, it's quite a deal if it's as dramatic as it's being described. But of course, they get there and nothing happens, so they leave it at that. But you're right, if Father Schulze thought that it may not be fully possession-related, but what I like from these clergymen is that they don't immediately jump to, it's a demon, which is funny because that's such a trope these days that I hear from other podcasters, paranormal researchers, that their pet peeve, and a lot of listeners, of course, and viewers, is that everybody jumps to the conclusion it's demons. Demons, demons, demons. Yeah. It's got to be demons. Well, if you're watching a TV show and you're hunting something, yeah, that's more scary than the idea that it's a sweet little old lady who's just passed on. The idea here, though, is that that's more geared towards entertainment. And if you look at what people are actually saying, the clergy that are looking at this case, they're very hesitant to say that it is actually demonic possession and they take all these steps to figure out what it is. Of course, they entertain that it's a possibility. Unlike, you could say, a lot of Western medical practitioners who don't take any stock in that at all, of course, these are spiritual people. That's their business. They just want to know exactly what they're dealing with. And if it right. is something just, you know, we've also heard cases of more mild psychokinetic happenings and poltergeist activity happening with young people. We've all talked about that now. That's fairly accepted within the paranormal activity uh, research world and that somebody who's younger and going through a lot of emotional disturbance at the moment possibly can affect things physically moving but it doesn't mean it's a demon it's just right. somehow it right. somehow apparently telekinesis is a is a possibility that it happens that's right but anyway that's what i'm saying is that they don't jump to the demon's conclusion because they take it seriously and if it is demons then they got to pull out the big guns yeah absolutely Hello everyone, I'm Gareth, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, coming back around to one of the other things that Troy suggests, that's hysteria. And he does a great job of laying this out. It's just one of the hardest theories for me to even posit, frankly. I, I don't on the whole really believe in hysteria in this application. I mean, you can absolutely be hysterical, but for a story to to become this detailed and involved, that just doesn't track for me. 
Taylor talks about the stigmata, which Ronnie didn't have, and other ways this could have manifested. But he, he also mentions that folks have said the whole thing is a cover-up for abuse. And that definitely happens. But is that what's going on here? And I'm not convinced that it is. It's something that we've addressed before in multiple episodes, so I'm not going to drill down super deep on that. Now, And mm-hmm. now we come back to the big one, mental illness. This has to be the most likely explanation for a lot of people, and it's near the top of the list for me, too. The interesting thing is the invisible line of definition between the idea of this being strictly mental illness or being strictly spiritual in nature. The possibilities in a case like this are complex, and that's why the truth can be so elusive. Now, when it comes to the chances of this case having been obsessive-compulsive disorder or dissociative identity disorder— We chased down some very dense scholarly papers on that. Well, our researchers did in their research core. Speaking of which, I would like to thank Michael, Anna, and Tobin for their contributions on this particular episode. We have links to those papers in the show notes, but there's a couple of broad takeaways. So there's a lot of amazing people in our research group, but one of the first ones I want to touch on is Dr. Tobin Fisher. He's been a medical doctor for over 20 years with his main focus in family practice, but he's also worked in the ER, hospice, and managing mental illness in all forms. He says that he believes that whatever happened to Ronnie, it was not mental illness of any form and specifically not DID or dissociative identity disorder. He then provided a link from the Cleveland Clinic about DID. Here's an excerpt from that page. How common is DID? The page says DID is very rare. The disorder affects between 0.01 and 1% of the population. It can occur at any age, and women are more likely than men to have DID. Symptoms and causes. What causes dissociative identity disorder? DID is usually the result of sexual or physical abuse during childhood. Sometimes it develops in response to a natural disaster or other traumatic events like combat. The disorder is a way for someone to distance or detach themselves from trauma. What are the signs and symptoms of DID? A person with DID has two or more distinct identities. The core identity is the person's usual personality. Alters are the person's alternate personalities. Some people with DID have up to 100 alters. Alters tend to be very different from one another. The identities may have different genders, ethnicities, and ways of interacting with their environments. Other common signs and symptoms of DID can include anxiety, delusions, depression, disorientation, drug or alcohol abuse, memory loss, suicidal thoughts, or self-harm. Dr. Fisher adds here, as there is not a cure, I would say a religious rite would not work as a placebo. DID is a disease that is thought splits the personality of an individual, most likely caused by severe childhood trauma. Although Ronnie was troubled, we are talking chronic repetitive physical and sexual abuse, which I know no evidence of. The biggest argument against DID or any mental illness or personality disorder is that they are not curable. They can be managed and the symptoms controlled, sometimes completely. But this requires ongoing management. Think of depression. Medications and therapy help you with your depression and can make it go into remission, but it is more likely than not, unless it was caused by a specific event such as the death of a loved one, it will come back. This is the same with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, etc. Think of it like high blood pressure that can be managed but rarely goes away. From my understanding, Ronnie never had any issues again and led a normal life after this event, 
even becoming a rocket scientist. Also, with DID, it is usually multiple personalities that may have issues, a crying child, etc., but not a supernatural personality. These people are usually very dysfunctional for the rest of their lives, and I have never heard of or read anywhere of anyone ever having just one period of events and then nothing for the rest of their lives. This is an interesting thing. It connects to something that someone you're going to be hearing from in a minute associates with survivorship bias, which is the concept that people that get better, you don't read about them or hear about them in terms of this stuff. So that's an important thing. It's like a confirmation bias, but it's like if someone goes through all this and they get better, it's their papers aren't written, nothing goes on. They, they just go on and they get better. So Yeah, essentially it's an interesting concept and it replies to so many other types of, you could say, ways of looking at things and facts and results. I often thought about this back when, geez, I think I was working freelance and they were saying like, you know, unemployment's really low and okay, but I I just know a lot of people that are out of work. Is that true? And then what you realize is that they stopped counting the people that stopped looking for work. Right. So once your unemployment ended, your benefits ended and you weren't on those roles anymore, they counted you as, well, maybe you found a job. We don't know, but we stopped counting you. So you were still unemployed. You just stopped getting unemployment benefits and maybe you stopped looking for a job for a while, but they counted you as being employed in a way. On the other hand, I apply this to you, sir, good sir, good friend. When when we would drive around, especially going for lunch, and it did happen a lot, you would try to pull into a driveway and you're like, there you go. Every time I try to pull in, there's somebody crossing the sidewalk there. And it's like, yes, that does happen a lot. But what the point is, is that you weren't also counting the times that you tried to pull into a driveway it wasn't a just a driveway. It was a street. It was turning on the corner and it would be, and it wouldn't be a popular street or crosswalk. It wasn't a particularly busy one, but the the person would just appear. Someone would appear. It was like the matrix or some SIM controller was like, <laughs> like you know what? You don't get to turn in right now. You don't get yeah. to back out of your driveway. You don't get to turn on your street. You don't like, and no one's ever there most of the time. If you're walking to Starbucks, nobody's there. But when your car is trying to go through, no dice. Here's my point. It wasn't a huge inconvenience. It kept us from our Mongolian barbecue for another 10 seconds. Ah, I missed that The point, though, is that you're also not counting the times it didn't happen. And for the full set of data, you need to. You know what I'm saying? What's the percentage of that happening? Is it more than 50%? That'd be kind of crazy. If it's as low as like, I don't know, 10%, I don't know what the percentages are on these things, but that's how you do the numbers. So what we're saying here is this survivorship bias is, yeah, you're not hearing about the people that did okay and went on to have normal lives or the people that never recovered. There's some subset there that someone here is making a claim that you're not being counted as much as you should be or not at all, or you should count everything. But those things are hard to figure out. What they're saying here, though, is with Ronnie, it's very unusual, maybe never heard of before, of somebody just being, I'm fine, totally, totally okay and never ever having another symptom or anything else happening without use of pharmaceuticals or therapy. It just was okay on its own. Unless you maybe consider, we're going to get to this idea, that the exorcism itself was a form of extreme therapy. Well, that's a great segue, actually. And I want to get into that. I also want to get into the bigger picture here and, and say something that we must point out. We don't know, and I don't think anyone does, whether Ronnie had continued treatment after this. Right. All we know is that he supposedly, we know that he had a successful career and you're going to hear about that. 
and we know that he went on to do things, but we don't know how much therapy he had. We don't know if he was treated medically in any way in terms of medication. We're not really sure about that. So we can't make assumptions there. Exactly. But in 1949, he's still a young person in the care of his parents. So he's not an emancipated young man. He still lives with his parents and will for quite a while until he goes to college, I'm sure. So at this point, though, it's not like he just goes off to his own and nobody knows what he's up to. There are people keeping track of him. He's still going to school. But in light of keeping him anonymous and not wanting to rehash this and have that part of his stigma forever where that's your life, that's how you're defined for everything else you do for the rest of your life, you're the possession kid, no one's really talking about it, it's kind of kept quiet, and the records are are kept quiet, and he's able to go on and live his life pretty normally. That's the point here. Yeah, I agree. And so, well, all right, so here's the next thing I want to talk about, and it's hard to put all this stuff in order because the progression of events here is a little bit all over the place. But one of the things that I think a lot of people have brought up, and and I brought up myself in my own mind internally, was the idea that if whatever he was suffering from was psychosomatic in nature, could he have been cured by an exorcism as a form of placebo? Somehow they came in and, and this played right into what he thought was happening to him, and the process cured him. And here's what's interesting about this. And our researcher, Michael Mallory, in the Astonishing Research Corps, or the ARC, dug up this article on uh, placebo and the exorcism idea. This is written by Thomas Sordis. And I want to read a little background on Thomas Sordis before I go into this. Thomas J. Sordis is a distinguished professor in the Department of Anthropology, the Dr. James Y. Chan Presidential Chair in Global Health, founding director of the Global Health Program and director of the Global Health Institute at the University of California, San Diego. Sordis has served as president of the Society for the Anthropology of Religion and co-editor of Ethos, Journal of the Society for Psychological Anthropology, and is an elected member of the American Society for the Study of Religion. He has conducted ethnographic fieldwork among charismatic Catholics, Navajo Indians, adolescent psychiatric patients in New Mexico, Catholic exorcists in the United States and Italy, and providers of care for refugees and asylum seekers on the U.S.-Mexico border. Critical topics in these studies include therapeutic processes in religious healing, ritual language and creativity, sensory imagery, self-transformation, techniques of the body, causal reasoning about illness, and the understanding of lived experience. Hmm. Yeah. I wish I had a bio like that. I don't. It's like, my just <laughs> Scott Philbrick makes a podcast. We read this article. Yeah. yeah, I love this. But psychiatrists and psychologists who are both practicing Catholics and convinced in the ontological, and I want to stop here and read the definition mm-hmm. of ontological. Uh, okay. Yeah. This is a phrase that my brother-in-law throws around fairly often because it's it, it means nothing to him. It's like the word the or and, but I always have to stop and look it up. Ontology. This is the definition of ontology. And Merriam-Webster, a branch of metaphysics concerned with the nature and relations of being, or definition number two, a particular theory about the nature of being or the kinds of things that have existence. So I just wanted to explain that what's happening here is when you say psychiatrists and psychologists who are both practicing Catholics and convinced in the ontological reality of evil spirits, Right. That consult and assist exorcists. These are people that are talking about whether or not evil spirits exist. At all. Right. Yeah. And coming back to Sorda's paper here. 
One such Catholic psychiatrist who holds a medical school faculty position in psychiatry as well as a clinical position in the affiliated mental hospital responded to an article in a Catholic magazine written by the dean of his medical school. The dean, himself a Catholic, argued that what in biblical times was defined as demonic possession corresponds to what today is understood to be mental illness. My interlocutor agreed with everything except the obsolescence of evil spirits and argued that evil spirits are, in his phrase, ontological entities. When I asked if his position was not a challenge to rationality, he invoked Aquinas on the synthesis of faith and reason. So coming down to this last section here, this is this is fascinating to me. If possession is understood to be mental illness and actuality, would that mean exorcism must by definition be understood as placebo? Would that conclusion be reversed if exorcism was redefined as a form of psychotherapy? If demons were ontological entities, would that allow exorcism to be defined as active rather than inert? If a mentally ill person was possessed and then healed by exorcism, would its effect on the possession be understood as active, while its effect on the psychiatric disorder be understood as placebo? Are we justified in describing the demonic spirit as a nocebo, an inert, immaterial entity capable of causing harm to humans? Are we justified in describing the rite of exorcism as a placebo, an inert, symbolic performance? It is out of the question to say that the afflicted are not really suffering. And therefore, exorcism as an inert treatment is only alleviating a non-effect. Exorcists and their assisting mental health professionals seriously endeavored to distinguish cases of psychiatric disorder and demonic possession, and moreover to consider whether an individual can be said to be both mentally ill and possessed. One exorcist has written that the criterion of demonization is that there is a kind of surplus in the sense that the affliction goes beyond what is typical of psychiatric disorder. This suggests that there may be a phenomenological surplus distinctive to the Roman Catholic cultural milieu, which is expressed, enacted, and experienced in specifically Catholic terms. In other words, following the premise that each culture engenders the problems for which it then creates solutions. The possession-exorcism complex may be such a phenomenon. All right, so what do you think about that for us? It's fascinating to me because it's this idea <laughs> well, that here's the problem, but it's a problem that's framed by our own set of solutions. Yeah, and it's a philosophical look on this in that what is it really doing? What does it mean? So to, I guess, recap this a little, but the statement or the position is saying is that, okay, so possession, it, you know, it's not about spirits, it's not demons, it's just mental illness and has been for a long time misdiagnosed as spiritual in nature, but really just mental illness. But the act of the exorcism, the rites, the performance of that is then what they're saying is that, okay, so you're not really exercising demons, but you're doing this ritual that does seem to help in some cases, maybe most cases. But then, because those aren't really demons, just mental illness that it seems to help with, does that mean then that the exorcism ritual is a placebo? It's a dog and pony show that somehow gets this person to be better, or at least after a while, because the other thing that we've seen is that it doesn't happen in one session. 
like psychotherapy or talk therapy, it has to happen over quite a long time That's and right. it, it takes a while. That's right. right. So in this case, though, the other part of this is that, well, okay, if demons were real things, if they did exist, does that then make exorcism to be defined as something you're actually doing, like medicine? When you take pharmaceuticals prescribed by your doctor, they're actually doing something, not like the sugar pills that are commonly associated with placebos. They're actually, uh, they're chemicals that are supposedly helping you, sometimes giving you side effects, but it's, it's doing a real thing. It is not inert. It's really acting upon this, this real thing. So if that's the case, the statement goes on here, would that allow exorcism to be defined as active rather than inert? Is it actually doing something then if demons were real? Right. So for me, the interesting final thought is, and this is certainly nothing new, but let's say there is no such thing as demons or demonic possession. Somebody's really just mentally ill, having a very horrible episode. So let's say it's something like dissociative identity disorder and the idea that the the person believes in, in that case that, no, no, I'm, I'm an evil person. I am possessed by demons and I'm going to hurt people. This is horrible. I need to be stopped. I'm sick. And then you have priests that come in and say, yes, you are possessed by demons. And that fuels the belief and furthers that. But then you have the priest saying like, but we can fix you. We're going to do these rituals and after, uh, hopefully with a lot of this prayer. This is where we're headed. Yeah, we're going to we're going to cure this in you or try. We're going to give it our darndest. And you hopefully will be, will be better yeah. and free of the demons. And here's the thing, though. Okay, so what's my other point here? <laughs> demons don't exist. <laughs> what is your These point? These people are coming in. You really have maybe just an episode. Well, that's what the other doctor was saying. You don't just have a one-time episode of DID. Right. You don't have a one-time episode of OCD. It, it takes work and therapy and a lot of uh, medication, oftentimes, to keep working at it, to get it to be maintainable, to be manageable, but it never really goes away. Okay, so here's the deal, though. The priests come in, you don't really have demons, <laughs> they don't prescribe... There's that meme I just thought about. You have demons in your blood, I prescribe cocaine. <laughs> That's a meme. I haven't seen that one. Oh, it's kind of funny. Yes. Uh, I totally think you should do cocaine. So the idea, though, is that... He doesn't think that, folks. I just I have to do the disclaimer, the official Astonishing Lenders disclaimer. I don't think we have insurance policies for him saying... No, no. no. Never do anything that is not prescribed by your qualified physician. But the joke of the meme was back then. You could get any of these kind of pharmaceuticals at the chemist or the pharmacy, and it didn't matter. And they didn't know what things were. They just thought, like, well, try this, which is not all that crazy because... Nowadays, that's kind of what they do. Try Lexapro, try uh, some scopolamine, try all these different combinations. And also it's about different dosages. It, it's so... Hey, look, I'm going to tell you about scopolamine. I love boating. I love canoeing, kayaking, sailing. I actually studied sailing. I got my license. I used to charter boats yeah, in the Marina right. del Rey. Yeah. I did all that stuff. But also I get seasick. I, I'm going to go ahead and admit it. I get seasick. And I tried everything. I tried the bracelet on my wrist. I did all this stuff. None of it worked. But you know what did work? A little patch of scopolamine behind my ear. I put it on. It worked so good. I was just like, wow, I'm having no right. problems. And also, it's not like Dramamine, which 
makes you sleepy and tired and mm-hmm, all that. Mm-hmm. I put this, it works so good that I took the patch. I remember the t- first time I worked, I was like, I don't need this. Yeah. I feel great. And I took the patch <laughs> oh, off and within an hour I was on the bow throwing up. So it's just like, Oh yeah. no. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to yeah. say Scapala means a miracle, but I also remember a piece on vice news where they went down to where it's like growing on the trees or whatever. And they call it the devil's breath. People with uh, nefarious instincts would take it down off the trees or wherever it came from they could blow it in your face and you would lose your willpower oh my. and they would say come with me to this hotel room and let me have your wallet and you would just go that kind of thing yeah it's just weird as i think i put a little patch behind my ear and i was able to sail and be happy oh yay i'm sailing whatever it's right, like right. stupid and then in in this other country people are using it to make people do whatever they want Scopolamine, everybody. It's a commercial for scopolamine. We're getting into zombification <laughs> yeah, territory yeah. here, which we're not uh, Devil's uh, breath. We're not going to, but the point is it's often prescribed as well as an antipsychotic medication. And it just it just depends. I've you know know people that they'll try one Wellbutrin and that has bad side effects for them. Yeah. Doesn't work so well. They'll try something else. And let's just try a lot of trial and error. But my point here, getting to wrap this up is that let's say that you are really experiencing demons because they don't exist. So you have this ritual performed on you and that seems to work. So what's going on there then? What was it? Was it just the placebo effect or is there something really happening that's being produced as the article says here, actively as a solution, as a remedy. Because I I learned this in Psych 101 in college, is that what they knew back then uh, was that the reason that therapy works, talk therapy, is that you're just basically talking for so long to somebody consistently, and you kind of eventually work it out yourself. That's right. Yeah. You have somebody listening who knows where to lead your conversations, but that's the old running joke, like, well, how did that make you feel? Right. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? Oh, because because you never examined how, you, how it made you feel. How do you feel about that? So there's a lot going on here, a lot to unpack. But the idea, though, is that if none of this is real and the exorcism does work, and in Ronnie's case, worked for the rest of his life, with no other help of, again, as we said, that we know of where he was taking ongoing pharmaceuticals or therapy. And again, realize that this is 1949 to 1950. It's still fairly primitive, a lot more than it is now for treatments and pharmaceuticals. So yeah, you have to wonder though, it's like what worked there? What was the mechanism? Was it just placebo? And if it was, is that enough? Is that fine then? Why not just take something that works, regardless of what's actually the mechanism here? Because who cares if it's chemical in nature or does it? No, it has to be drugs. He has to take a drug and then has to make him better. And he has to go through these other uh, procedures like behavioral exposure therapy, all these other things that we kind of know now that were back then not too well known. Actually, the one where you do expose yourself to whatever you're scared of has at least been around since the Middle Ages because they know it's basically getting used to something that you're afraid of. So here, though, you do wonder what's what's going on, and if it is placebo, does that count? I guess is that's the question we have to, to look at. That's a great point, Forrest, and that brings us around to some testimony that we got here from a friend of ours that was diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder from a very young age and has lived with it their entire life. We asked this person to weigh in on the possibility of OCD being at play 
with Ronnie's condition here. And here are some excerpts from what they had to say. They add, actually, they've been diagnosed with not only OCD, but PTSD, major depression, unspecified dissociative disorders, and various anxiety disorders. This person told us that OCD is in many ways like autism, specifically in that it is an issue with the way that the brain processes information. But with OCD, the information you do not process correctly is related to dealing with situations that are dangerous or cause you anxiety. It isn't what TV and movies portray, with obsessive cleaning or peculiar habits and things, although sometimes it may appear that way. It's more about ritual and creating incorrect maps in your mind between cause and effect. It also has two main components, the obsession and the compulsion. Obsessions are exactly what they sound like, things that you become fixated on. However, in OCD, these often include an inability to suppress thoughts on traumatic or anxiety-causing things. These are often termed intrusive thoughts. Stuff like you're falling asleep and you think, what if the oven catches fire? Repeatedly. The more you try to suppress the thought, the harder it becomes. And so eventually you need to do something to get the anxiety down. And so people turn towards their compulsions. Compulsions are things that at first seem reasonable, but eventually spiral into becoming unreasonable. So in the example of the oven, you get up to check that you shut off the burners. Doing it once is maybe all right, but in OCD, you need to check again and again, and sometimes multiple times in a row until you feel that you checked it just right. This is, in fact, how I discovered I probably had OCD. And this, again, is our, our anonymous friend. I was checking the doors to my house multiple times before I would leave, eventually checking windows, the oven, the fridge, and the locks of my car. It became so bad that I would spend an hour before bed each night checking the windows. Further exacerbating things is that often your compulsions may themselves become obsessions. So for me, one of my compulsions was counting in my head when I was uncomfortable. I would also repeat sentences in my head until they sounded right and would do sort of twitches with my hands or legs until I got the right rhythm. But the fear that my compulsions were unnatural or that they suggested I was not healthy become a big obsession and fear for me. And so I would attempt to do other things to combat an already unhealthy coping strategy. So you end up almost with this layered obsession, compulsion, obsession, compulsion thing. And your brain continues to reinforce it by reliving anxiety with each compulsion you perform. Eventually, if left untreated, you're just doing compulsions so separated from the original anxiety that they are very hard to treat and understand, especially for the OCD sufferer themselves. These intrusive thoughts can feel like they're not your own thoughts, and that can especially become challenging if the fear develops that, quote, I am losing my mind, or if I don't quiet my brain, I'll go crazy. That starts to occur. You can, I'm sure, see how easy it would be for a religiously motivated fear, for example, I'm a homosexual or I'm a sinner, to take root. These are then reinforced if religious compulsions make you feel better, for example, compulsively praying the rosary or going to church. This can begin to develop larger, layered, obsessive thoughts, such as, I am possessed by a demon. You seem to be having obsessive thoughts that compel you to sin or suggest that you are yourself a sinner and religious compulsions help you feel better. So, of course, it must be a religious illness. So, being exceptionally well-informed on this, we also asked our friend to detail what they knew about dissociative identity disorder as well. Here are their thoughts on that. 
Regarding dissociative disorders, I, I think one important thing to remember is that the jury is still sort of out on the reality of dissociative identity disorder as it's portrayed in the media. Dissociation is a very real coping strategy for anxiety-provoking situations and is a relatively common one depending on your definition. It can include things from separating oneself from emotional responses, also known as disengagement or numbing, separating oneself mentally from traumatic memories, selective amnesia for high sources of trauma, remembering things as if remembering a movie you saw, etc., or separating oneself directly from your identity for some reason. Much less common, but that's what people often think of when hearing dissociative identity disorder. An example would be remembering yourself during a particularly traumatic period as being a completely different person who you can no longer relate to. Another would be having a separate identity to suffer trauma while another for your everyday life. In this way, it is a coping strategy for suffering traumas or reliving them, and it relates to selective amnesia and the whole in-a-movie type of memories. The real issue with DID diagnosis is that a lot of the time, movies and people assume it's like having a separate person living inside you, although this isn't really accurate. As far as I know, it's more like having a part of you that you compartmentalize to deal with trauma or traumatic memories, and another part to deal with your regular life. Personally, I feel dissociation when visiting places that have traumatic associations for me, such as my hometown, or remembering traumatic events. I will have traumatic dreams or occasionally traumatic memories pop up that I can't really remember, but which could very well have happened. But they feel like they happened to someone else entirely. I also definitely disengage emotionally in general, which makes responding to or connecting with people sometimes difficult. Another important cofactor between OCD and DID is that often compulsive thoughts are things that you would never do in real life, but things which you fear about yourself or others. This can make the intrusive thoughts themselves feel like a separate person or identity in your head. And that may be a way some people cope with their intrusive thoughts. Deny that it is yourself having them, and develop compulsions or habits that help you enforce that unhealthy coping strategy. So I thought all this was interesting, and this person is, frankly, is a, is a very close friend of mine and yours, Forrest. But I found common ground in a lot of what he was describing just in my own existence. And I, I don't feel that I necessarily suffer from a clinical diagnosis of the same things he's facing. But what's interesting to me is that there's always an overlap between the extremities of this kind of condition and how folks that are undiagnosed with any of these conditions might also be experiencing things in life. So it's very amorphous. Absolutely. And here's something that I'm kind of noticing too, uh, having read all this and hearing about it. And again, going back to Annalisa Michel, we had on psychologist Jennifer Sai, Dr. Jennifer Sai, who talked and explained about these various things about OCD. And I remember what she said is, you know, you and I have small things we do. Look, my thing is I have a lot of small things I do. I, I like to write with the right pen depending on what kind of paper I'm using, what it's for. I've got calligraphy pens. There's things I, I don't like to write with. But here's the point in that she says, yeah, we all like things the way we like them, right? But for me, it's like, it's not debilitating. It's like, if I can't find another pen, I'm going to use a ballpoint. I'm going to use a Bic that somebody left behind in a conference room. It's It's not going to bother me or stop me. What the degree is here is that these are debilitating. As what our friend was saying, 
And I've heard this from other people. Uh, certainly, it's fascinating to me, but it's debilitating in that it takes up hours of your life having to check the stove and the lights in a specific pattern, because if you don't do it in that pattern, it's not right. You didn't do it in the best way that's most pleasing or effective, and you had to keep doing that. This one poor gentleman I, I saw in a news program, it would take him like an hour and a half, two hours to drive home to get to work and to drive home each time for a trip that took like 12 minutes because he was deathly afraid that he had run over somebody and he'd have to pull over and check the tires, yes. check the fenders. I've seen folks like this on in documentaries about OCD. Yeah, well, that's part of it. Yeah, specific uh, obsession. And this is what our friend was saying, is that y you know that's illogical, right? You didn't hear a big thump. You didn't hear a scream. You didn't really see anybody, but it doesn't matter. You, you still have to check it, because if you didn't, you, you might have, and you can't go on. That's the debilitating part, but that's kind of one of my final points here. It's the measure of degree of extremity. Right. It's, it's how extreme are these cases and the behaviors? And how extreme was Ronnie's compared to people who may be exhibiting or have some of the, the conditions that may have accounted for his behavior at that moment that then went away? Yeah, well, our friend made an analysis of that based on the story and, and what they knew about it. So here's that person, our anonymous friend, categorizing how they thought that some of Ronnie's symptoms might have fallen into the categories of OCD or DID and how that might have related to possession. Firstly, a separate voice telling you to do things that you would not normally do, such as sinning or harming others. That might be defined as intrusive thoughts and obsessions. Horrible images, unwanted sexual or religious thoughts, persistent repeated thoughts, again, intrusive thoughts and obsessions insomnia, and torture of the constant speaking of the demonic entity. Again, intrusive thoughts and obsessions. Inability to perform at school, pay attention, or focus on anything. This would be tiredness from the mental energy expending on obsession and ritual internally. Ritualistic chanting, swaying, movement, twitching, or performing actions until you hurt yourself. This would fall under the category of compulsive cleaning, skin picking, hair picking, or etc. Compulsions all the way. A lack of memory of events. Dissociative symptoms. Sleepwalking, talking, and other sleep disorder symptoms. Very common alongside OCD and DID. Out-of-body experiences. Again, dissociative response to anxiety. Ritual healing of the experience appears to work. Again, a religious compulsion allowing the religious-based obsession to be mitigated in the meantime. And this is fascinating. And it's another thing that this person said to me offline from this conversation was that this was related to PTSD as well. It's about dissociating from the event that you were caught up in in terms of the PTSD, getting away from that event in a way zoning out. Our friend goes on to say, in terms of prevalence, OCD is fairly common, around 1% to 2% of the population. It is often comorbid with other things such as Tourette's, autism, anxiety, and DID. It also often has other things that you may not realize, such as obsessive skin picking, hair pulling, body dysmorphia, and high rates of suicide. This is also true of dissociation disorders, although full-blown multiple personality disorder is thought to be somewhat more rare. Still, around 1% of the population seems to be the standard value given. 
Dissociation has been clinically studied and known of since the 1800s. OCD has been known of since the Middle Ages. Obsessively psychiatric care has improved quite significantly during that time. Although treatment is still rudimentary, and in fact the best treatment for dissociation OCD, or at least the one that our anonymous friend found most useful, is one as old as human history. Emotional flooding. In modern parlance, this is called cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, but it is comically similar. The basic idea is that at the root of your OCD, symptoms are fears or anxieties, which you are trying desperately not to face. But that doesn't work, and in fact, brain scans show that the longer you try and avoid the fear, the more strongly it creates a fear response. So instead, allow yourself to face the fear and feel the emotions you are trying to suppress. If you do this often enough, Eventually, your fight-or-flight response will become less, and you will no longer feel such anxiety with the thought or event. Eventually, your brain will catch on that it isn't really scary. There's a really good quote about this on Wikipedia, funnily enough, from the 1500s. The Cloud of Unknowing, a Christian mystical text from the late 14th century, recommends dealing with recurring obsessions by first attempting to ignore them. And if that fails... Quote, cower under them like a poor wretch and a coward overcome in battle, and reckon it to be a waste of your time for you to strive any longer against them, end quote. A technique now known as emotional flooding. So, for DID or dissociative disorders, you also try to reintegrate those memories or identity to better deal with the trauma. This can sometimes include just facing that something happened to you or going over memories you do have and trying to piece them together. But this can also be fairly problematic, since your memories themselves are fluid things which are easily changed by recall. This is sometimes what people use hypnosis for, but again, it is very easy to influence or change memories in this way. Remember that at the core of this, you are trying to keep yourself safe from trauma you faced. The brain will find any way out it can in those situations, including just making stuff up. There is no cure for OCD or dissociative disorders, since it is both a brain issue and a psychological one. Long-term treatments include medication and regular CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, or similar therapy-based approaches. One of the most prevalent times in recent history where DID was well-known was the 80s and 90s, although the conspiracy and UFO community has kept the ideas about it alive ever since. DID was often cited as a means of control for the NWO, which would be the New World Order, or political elite who would create separate identities for sex slaves or demonic ritual abuse victims. It was also well known in the 60s and 70s and also used as a lazy way to explain serial murderers. Remember that Psycho is all about a man who creates a separate identity, mother, to perform his crimes and was published in 1959 after the crimes of Ed Gein were discovered in 1957. One thing making this more complicated is that pre-1960, DID was often misconstrued alongside schizophrenia, which was the term used for this sort of issue from the 1890s to the 1950s. Famous cases of MPD slash DID were published in the 1910s and 20s, and of course this was used in literature as far back as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, as well as many stories by Edgar Allan Poe. So the question next becomes is, could this condition be cured by placebo or by an exorcism as a placebo? 
Well, it would not be cured, but it is very possible that relief from symptoms could be caused by placebo with a strong enough compulsive obsessive link. Again, for my own symptoms of anxiety and intrusive thoughts, things like counting in my head and tapping my fingers relieve symptoms, although they are themselves unhealthy coping strategies. Aspects of CBT, again, that's cognitive behavioral therapy, and those forms of emotional flooding style therapies are commonly found in shamanistic rituals, and the exorcism rite is a method by which a person who fears they are possessed by demons or is a sinful evil person, faces and embraces that fear head-on, eventually leading to a lowering of their anxiety around it. It is also hard to describe in writing, but I can give you an example of some of my own CVT work that I do when anxieties get too much. One of my anxieties around my childhood is that I am the source of all the dysfunction and abuse suffered in my home. I know logically that it's not true. But OCD does not care about logic. It is an obsessive thought that repeats until it is faced. So to stop the thought and those bad feelings, I immerse myself in those bad feelings. I repeat to myself that I am a bad person who deserves what happened to me. I look at pictures of my household taking during the abuse. I recall specific instances. I do whatever I need to in order to get my anxiety up around this issue. I force myself to feel the anxiety, and keep on doing those things until eventually the anxiety level begins to go down. Eventually, the anxiety goes away. I, I don't think I can express the wash of relief you get when the anxiety goes down in this way, but before treatment, my anxiety scale was probably always at around a 7 or 8 out of 10. The first time I truly felt no anxiety or even close to no anxiety was after this sort of treatment. I do that for weeks until eventually... The spiking of anxiety goes away, and I can instead deal with the anxieties head-on when they come up during the course of my daily life. The intrusive thoughts around that fear usually subside, and for many of them, I haven't had a true intrusive thought in years. Honestly, after treatment, it felt like I had gained superpowers, like my brain could function at ten times the level it could before, because I wasn't wasting so much of my mental energy on obsessions. If I had a fear that I was a sinner, or I was going to hell, or that I was possessed by demons, I can't think of a more powerful anxiety-spiking event than having a priest come and tell me that all of my fears were true. Following that with the waves of relief you get from the anxiety going down after being faced and the end of the intrusive thoughts, it's easy for me to see how a person with these symptoms, and our friend is talking about Ronnie here, would think they are possessed by a demon or even in contact telepathically with aliens who are warning them of evil in the world around them. I asked our friend about this specifically, and, and they said, it, it's more symptom treatment than mechanistic understanding. There is no medicine for OCD or DID or PTSD or any of them specifically because we don't know the underlying brain mechanism. So that's the, I guess, the testimony from our friend, which... Frankly, as I was reading, I, f I found it very, very upsetting. Just to be, you know, I care about this person. As somebody that's close to us, I, d I didn't really realize how intense what their life is like until I read that. And, and now just reading it on the air, like it came through to us and I knew I wanted to incorporate it into our outline, but it has to be really hard. I can't even imagine what it's like to deal with. But what, what I think is fascinating about this person's particular perspective is the common ground between what they've experienced and how they perceive this story that went down with Ronnie. 
I'm not saying personally, Forrest, and I don't want to put words in, or thoughts into your mouth, but I'm not saying personally that I necessarily think that Ronnie's experience overlaps with our friend's experience. Well, I do think it overlaps, but the question is, how much does it overlap? Is it 100% overlap? Is it 10% or 20%? And are there other factors involved? So, Look, you have to keep in mind, and this is what's often brought up when you... New shows do this quite a bit. And it's, you know, all, a lot of our news is punditry now rather than reporting. So what they do is they get some psychiatrist who's willing to come on television and they say, well, what do you think of this person who did this crazy thing? What's going through their head? And if the psychiatrist or psychologist is honest, what they'll say is like, well, you have to understand I'm diagnosing somebody off the television. I'm seeing video of them and I've heard of their behaviors. You can't do that effectively. You have to be with them. Yeah. There's not, it's not telemedicine, okay? So you, you need to have uh, them as your patient and study them for quite a while. And what we don't know here is what really went on with Roddy, other than the few instances that Troy was able to collect and report on. And I trust that reporting. But it's like he, you know, again, we said before that he went to a family physician. He went to a psychiatrist. He went to a psychologist. A few tests were performed, and they said, well, there's really nothing wrong with him. Right. Other than he's agitated. You know, he's he's upset, he's cranky, something's going on. But it wasn't major. There's nothing that they could see, at least in 1949. So you have to keep that in mind here. And so it's, I say, be cautious and wary of trying to compare these two or even Venn diagram them so you can see what overlaps. But we can see what's been said here between the two cases and make some inferences, but you can't make too many and shouldn't. Well, this brings me around to some messaging that came from one of our researchers in the Astonishing Research Corps, Anna, and I found this particularly fascinating. She found it on a website called mentalillnesspolicy.org, which was founded by a well-revered gentleman named D.J. Jaff, or Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E, who he passed away in 2020. Mentalillnesspolicy.org actually bills itself as, quote, unbiased information for policymakers and media. And Jaffe himself has a TED Talk, which we'll have a link to. He was a strong proponent of better mental health for everyone, but specifically the homeless. So on that website, our researcher Anna found an excerpt from a book entitled, quote, Strength for His People, a Ministry for Families of the Mentally Ill, end quote, by Pastor Stephen Waterhouse. Now, we're going to have a link to it, but we have this excerpt which we wanted to share. This is something that Anna singled out, and it's valuable for the purposes of our discussion. She adds, I haven't had time to read this book, but as a religion's teacher, I find these six claims valid. It starts out with, the Bible itself makes a distinction between disease and possession, Mark 6.13. Thus, Christian theology should recognize the difference. At least six factors differentiate schizophrenia from demonic possession, as described in the Bible. These factors can be helpful when trying to determine if an individual is possessed or has an NBD. That would be a neurobiological disorder. Number one, attraction to versus aversion to religion. Demons want nothing to do with Christ. Conversely, people with NBD are often devoutly religious. Number two, irrational speech versus rational speech. In New Testament accounts involving demons, the demons spoke in a rational manner. Untreated people with schizophrenia will often speak in nonsense and jump rapidly between unrelated topics. Three, ordinary learnings versus supernatural knowledge. 
Demons in the New Testament would speak through people to convey knowledge that otherwise could not have been known to the possessed individuals. Those with NBD have no such ability to know facts which they have not acquired by normal learning. 4. Normal versus Occultic Phenomena There is an aspect to demon activity that is just plain spooky. For example, poltergeists, levitations, trances, telepathy. These have an impact on others in the room, not just the possessed. With schizophrenia, the effect of the disorder is only on the disordered, not others. 5. The claim to be possessed. Authors who have clinical experiences both with demon possession and mental illness believe those who claim to be possessed are very likely not possessed. Demons wish to be secretive and do not voluntarily claim to be present. Hmm. And finally, effects of therapy. If prayer solved the problem, then it was probably not schizophrenia. If medicine helps alleviate the problem, it was not demon possession. So where does that leave us? I want to read this excerpt from Troy Taylor's book. This is from page 259 and 60 of the Kindle edition of his book. Quote, I interviewed Dr. Terry Cooper, professor of psychology at St. Louis Community College, Merrimack, about the possibility that Ronnie might have been mentally ill. He agreed that, in the past, many people with obsessive-compulsive tendencies were perceived as possessed. Quote, if they had Tourette's, if they would blurt out really obscene things, they thought that was a sign of possession. Even just epilepsy was often perceived as that. Anything that we didn't understand and seemed to have a mystery to it, it was open to the possibility that there was a larger reality causing it. I asked Terry if he thought exorcism could help people, and he agreed that it was possible. There's a part of me that thinks that exorcism was a pre-scientific way of what we do now with therapy, with medicine, with PET scans, with different things that we use. Maybe that was just a different way of understanding mental illness. When I asked specifically about Ronnie's case, though, his answer was pretty definitive. Quote, I've been a psychologist for a very long time, and there are different parts of the case that seem like they could be various things, but there is no single diagnosis that would explain all of the symptoms that Ronnie had. There simply isn't just one. And even if there had been only one diagnosis, we're still left with the biggest problem of all if we try and dismiss what happened to Ronald Hunkler as a mental illness. How was he cured? Let's pretend for a moment that Ronnie had bipolar disorder, dissociative identity disorder, Tourette's, epilepsy, or schizophrenia. Or maybe he suffered from all of them. How did any or all of them just disappear? There was no cure or even treatment for any of those things in 1949. And yet Ronnie left the hospital in perfect health and went on to live a long and relatively normal life. Well, to all of this, our anonymous friend who we quoted so extensively before said, psychology is not an exact science. What to one person looks like OCD, to another is schizophrenia. To another, it's ADD. And to another, it's normal. We still don't know very much about how the brain operates or how to treat mental illness effectively. They said Ronnie could have gone on to lead a normal life, just like loads of other people with acute mental illness episodes. They stressed it's important not to judge because you have no idea what someone is or was really going through. Well, folks, so you've heard everything. There's so many different ways this could have gone down. If you're in the mental health category on this, you may be caught up in all the possible diagnoses that Ronnie may have suffered from. There, there's those who suggest there's a connection between spiritual and all physical and mental afflictions. 
Every addiction might be an example of the devil at play, but is that irresponsible? Here's something to note about schizophrenia, for example. The, the ramblings, including the ones that Sarah Cahalan went through in Brain on Fire, are not coherent thoughts and ideas. But in Ronnie's case, when he was speaking out, deriding the priest performing the exorcism, while it was decidedly out of character for the stuff he was saying, it was complete and well-formed thoughts, sentences, and ideas. Maybe that pushes a medical diagnosis of OCD more towards the forefront, having potentially ruled out schizophrenia. Here's where I come down, at least in this moment. Our anonymous friend went into great detail on this, both as someone who's battled and continues to battle significant versions of many of these diagnoses, and also as a high-functioning individual with postgraduate degrees who's working professionally and doing very well. The information that we found about DID suggests that a girl is 10 times more likely to have it than a boy, which changes the 1% stat when you consider that Ronnie was a boy. Nevertheless, it's fascinating to see the parallels for the condition and treatment to what is involved in an exorcism. For example, I could see where a priest chanting in Latin together could have an almost ASMR hypnotic type quality to it, which in turn could create a poor man's version of hypnosis, whereby the sufferer can really lean into the treatment coming from the source of absolution, the church, with everyone in the room being a believer. As far as we know, Ronnie didn't have any lasting effects in his life after these events. Troy Taylor interviewed him, and it was brief, so I suppose we don't really have evidence one way or the other. But the, the, the bigger question, however, is the seemingly telekinetic interactions. Even Father Halloran, who is skeptical of much of what has been made of the case, is said that a bottle of holy water on a table, far away from any human beings in the room, flew off the table at his head and smashed against the wall. He also said that Ronnie's bed fully levitated off the floor 8 to 10 inches. Neither one of these two events can be linked to OCD, DID, or any other mental condition. Those are events that are independent of the victim in this story. They are unrelated to Ronnie as a person, and therefore categorically cannot be linked to any diagnosis connected to Ronnie. I don't care what you have. It does not explain objects breaking the laws of physics in your presence. And not just one time, multiple times in multiple locations, witnesses by multiple people of varying levels of belief and faith. So at that point, you're now having to cast doubt on the character of the witnesses, probably leaning on confirmation bias. But Halloran himself won't say if the boy was possessed. He's contradicted himself a few times in interviews regarding Ronnie's strength, etc., but, but Halloran seems mostly a reliable witness who is not prone to exaggerating the events he witnessed, even if he did seem to have fun with the questions he got over the years. However, there are other witnesses, including Alexian monk Brother Greg, who came forward just before he died and was absolutely convinced that Ronnie was possessed. But all of this opens the other can of worms that go back to Annalisa Michel and other possible sources of the problems. And we get into this whole chicken and egg thing with good versus evil and a complex but mundane scientific explanation versus a more spiritual one. Then, of course, the dangerous supposition that those two things might both be true and in some cases intertwined. So in the end, it doesn't seem to me like anyone can say, yep, 100% medical or yep, 100% spiritual or even some combo of both. There are only people who believe it was primarily spiritual versus people who believe it was primarily medical. So I'll have to come back to 
If objects flew across the room on their own, beds levitated, and according to the monk, Ronnie levitated himself, how can the scale not tip towards the unexplained? And then the other question I have personally is, if it is spiritual in nature, who says our human constructs of religion are even the right framework for it? Because to me, this feels like the trickster all over again, and I feel like it's just pouring itself into whatever mold of fear we provide for it. In fact, in the big picture and grand scheme of how my own thought process has evolved in the seven years since we started the show, more and more I'm starting to believe that everything that is at the heart of all these stories is coming from one source, one place in reality that we can't quite get our hands on. All of it, with the possible exception of non-interactive crisis apparitions of loved ones. But everything else, skinwalkers, ghosts, EVPs, possessions, the vertical plane, the siren call of hungry ghosts, the black monk of Pontefract, the bell witch, they're all starting to feel like the same thing, manifesting in different ways, all designed to get as much of a rise out of humanity as possible. The next thing I want to explore in 2022 is that book, The Trickster and the Paranormal. I feel like it's going to say the same thing that we're already coming up with here. And the only reason I think that the non-interactive crisis apparitions are maybe of a different ilk is because they feel more like messages left behind by something that clearly has every intention of moving on, rather than sticking around and playing you. But I'm also feeling like sometimes you're dealing with something that was never human. Like in the case of the sludge entity, or maybe even, wait for it, the Sally House. An elemental, as we've discussed before. The real question becomes, with this barely formed hypothesis of mine, though, is am I describing what humanity refers to as a demon? Well, not exactly, because I'm feeling like this is all maybe at the hands of something outside the construct of religion, and maybe even humanity in general. I wonder if it presents itself, for example, within the Catholic framework in this case, because the people involved chose the form a la Ghostbusters, and they got what scared them most. But then again, you could say that all points back to OCD and possibly scrupulosity as well. We didn't talk about scrupulosity, but that's a specific form of OCD that's focused on religion and thinking that you're a sinner and praying the rosary obsessively to absolve that sin. And not just the rosary, that was an example. But even with OCD and scrupulosity, you know, look it up because it's fascinating. There's nothing in that diagnosis that includes telekinetic powers. So where are we? It's like, if I think I know, I'll say, but in this case, I'm not sure. And I, I, I honestly, I have no idea where we are. <laughs> yeah. And coming to my final thoughts here, we'll have to take the tack that our esteemed author and friend, Troy Taylor has in his book and that well, also Father Halloran and Father Bodern, perhaps, in that you can't say exactly what happened or what the cause is because they don't have supernatural knowledge and omniscience. <laughs> we're just human, and we're living here in this plane, so we have limited access to what's really going on. But you know what you saw, you know what you experienced, and you're not hallucinating. It was confirmed by other people in the room there. So it's interesting. So what Troy would say is that, and I have to agree, is that, well, I don't know what was going on with Ronnie exactly. I don't think we can say definitively. I mean, you, your beliefs will guide that. You know, you believe in possession. If you believe in 
God and the devil, and you believe you have a, a religious construct to your beliefs, it frames your reasoning, okay, or none of this is real, you're atheist, this is ridiculous, it's, it's all gotta be mental illness, and misdiagnosed, misinterpreted, not dealt with at all, and whatever happened to Ronnie to make him get better just happened on its own. It just did. It just went away. We had comments like that about my friend and their son, Jack, in the sludge entity. And I remember a few of them, and, and it's there's no point in arguing, because again, I, I don't know. I can tell you what happened, and that I believed them, and they are describing that case accurately, as the parents of the child, but I remember one person saying like, well, I don't, I think that was all baloney. That was harmful what they did to the kid. They're endangering them. You know, they were taken on by charlatans. And this was somebody in our own Facebook group too. It was just like, you know, they, they started to buy into Native Americans waving swords and all kinds of crap, just crap. It's just, they bought into it. It was all baloney. And then whatever happened to the kid, he just got better naturally on his own. That's what happened. Because that logic is all you have left, and that there were no drugs administered. There's no such thing as an afterlife or spirituality. It's just real physicality here and materialism, that whatever happened, he just got better. They filled his head with a bunch of nonsense, and finally something snapped, and he didn't believe it anymore, and he was just fine. Okay, well, that's your that's your take on it. I don't necessarily agree with that. What I believe is, logically, is that mental illness and a spiritual or supernatural condition are not mutually exclusive. You can have both. Well, here's the thing. I allow the possibility of the supernatural to exist. That's where I come from. That's just my belief system. You don't have to believe that. You don't, I, I'm not trying to convince you. You don't have to buy into it. What I'm saying is, for me, it's a possibility. I don't know if it's happening here, but in this case, it could be a combination of things. Like I said, it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. We always talk about this. People want to believe in the binary. Like, no, it's one of, it's either this or it's that. Can't be both. Well, I think it can. In this case, though, if you look at uh, some other elements to it, well, I go back to the Thomas Sordis article and what he had written there in that one exorcist has written the criterion of demonization is that there is a kind of surplus in the sense that the affliction goes beyond what is typical of psychiatric disorder. That's the key to this case and others like it. It's a little harder to say, and I think it was maybe a little more clear-cut, and of course with Annalisa Michel that people said, well, there you go. She was abused. She just wasted away there because there weren't many instances of supernatural occurrences, superhuman strength, uh, spitting out nails, all these crazy things we, we hear of happening that have been documented. It wasn't that so much. There was one instance, uh, again, people kind of dismissed where she was on the bus and apparently uh, it wasn't just the, the, the church gossip who reported this, I believe. A handful of people on the bus said that, you know, she started speaking in this low guttural tone and they smelled a really awful smell of burning feces. That's a sign of demonics that priests and exorcists will look for in cases like that. Where's that coming from? Did he just light some hair on fire that he had in his pocket and we didn't notice and suddenly there's a horrible stink? If you look at Ronnie's case while he's in his bedroom, just the copious amounts, the excessive amounts of micturation just coming out of his body. It's like, it, from what's described and the way you read it, it's just like, it seems impossible. You'd be drained of all fluid. 
it's not like he drank a gallon of water and 30 minutes later he's doing this. It's just like, where is this coming from? The fact that it smells so awful that they feel like they're going to gag and pass out, they got to open all the windows. There are things, just aside from the poltergeist activity that, if reported, is pretty wild, if you believe all of it. So if you if you believe that that's true and they're relating that's that's also true and they're not just trying to scare everybody to convert to Catholicism, and I'm sure that's that's an argument that some people are going to make, that they're just, they're all in cahoots because they want you to believe in this kind of stuff. Well, I don't know. I just want to quickly say it's interesting you said that because the family did convert to Catholicism after this. Yeah, right. The other thing that I thought about that that was interesting is because if you look at the idea of our anonymous friend who talked about OCD and DID, mm-hmm. and then also the other papers that we looked at in terms of ongoing treatment, one of the things that they said, if you look past the exorcism, it's like, oh, it's solved. There was an exorcism. Was that a placebo? Right. And this person was healed and it was just a mental illness or some other kind of thing. It's like, well, if you're... I hesitate to use the phrase devil's advocate, but like Mm. if you're looking at this case where Ronnie is going through this treatment and the treatment is the exorcism and Ronnie is dealing with OCD and possibly scrupulosity and then the priests come in and they're chanting in Latin and that's playing Mm -hmm. right into the things that he thinks will help him. And then he recovers. And then on the back end of that, it's not necessarily a miraculous ongoing recovery if he then joins the Catholic Church and can partake in ongoing support from the church that's specifically related to the issue that took him to that point in the first place. That's just me. I'm taking the most mundane point of view here Mm -hmm. because I have to consider that as a possibility. What's that? Just the idea that, like, no, this was all, it was obsessive-compulsive disorder, and it was Mm -hmm. related to scrupulosity, and then the priests came in, and they performed an exorcism, and the exorcism in itself was a form of hypnosis that helped assuage the problems that Ronnie was having, and then on top of that, after that, Ronnie had converted to Catholicism, And as a result, the Catholic Church was able to perform ongoing versions of therapy to help Ronnie move forward with his life that isn't even considered. It's just this big picture where he's psychologically cradled to deal with whatever it was that put him in this position that's not necessarily, not necessarily spiritual in nature. And I'm saying, I'm just playing the, again, the devil's advocate here for the outsiders looking in on this. That still does not explain the holy the holy water flying across the room or the bed levitating or Ronnie himself levitating. I'm just saying if you took those things away and you say, oh, you know what, all that, that was mistaken. They didn't understand it. Right. If we're just looking at this from a psychological standpoint, it's possible that it played out this way. Yes, but you can't because all that crazy stuff happening, the bottles flying the dresser moving in front of the door, trapping them in there, the crumbling of the book, all the things we talked about, the testimony. That's right. That's right. The lunging at the Bible and the, the Bible just disintegrating into confetti. All these crazy things that shouldn't happen are part of the story, and you can't cleave that away. You can say, like, well, they're making that part up, and he was just doing this all this all this other crazy stuff. It's like, well, then the, the case is different. But that's what I talked about earlier. That all goes to the surplus, quote-unquote of this activity that's beyond just mental illness. That's the point of this whole story. That's why it's different than the case of Annalisa Michal, in that it's a lot more. There's a lot more supernatural activity 
which I think, uh, this leads to another point of mine, in that case, that turned into a court case because you couldn't look to a lot of crazier stuff that happened. And then at that point, it does look more like abuse. And you have to wonder, are the priests abusing her or the parents? Because she looks emaciated, weird. She speaks in weird tones, but maybe that's possible for somebody in that condition. We don't know. Here's my next point in that if the devil exists, if you want to believe that, then I think logically you could say that this is exactly how a demonic or the devil himself would want it to play out, especially in the case of Annalisa, in that, okay, I'm going to inflict this, this poor girl and do all this stuff, and at the end of it, I get away with it. They blame each other. And then people who don't believe in me, they blame the priests. Look what these awful people did. Look at what these parents did to her own child. They're the demon. They're the evil. They're the monsters. And so is the clergy, and so is the priest. If you believe in the devil, well, he's the master of deception, of chaos, of divisiveness, of doubt and dissension. That's exactly how I would want this to play out. I don't want to wrap this up like, yes, I did it. Thank you. Good night. Tip your waitress. I'll be back to haunt somebody else and, and, and do some crazy stuff you're not going to believe because I want you to believe in me and fear me. No, it's the quote that we said at the beginning is that one of the greatest tricks is that the devil has got you to believe that he does not exist and that if you just keep your head down and don't poke around and don't, uh, don't want to get involved, that you're free and clear. You won't get bothered. That's not the case. If you believe in, if you're religious and you believe in this stuff, it seems as we will hear in a audio clip coming up, even if you don't believe in this stuff, maybe it's your imagination, whatever it is, even if you don't believe in it, it can still affect you. And that was pretty gripping to hear. And that's, that's what's coming up in a little bit here. But to finish my thoughts in that maybe it doesn't matter what you believe. It just happens to you. And, and maybe it's just human nature. It's OCD. It's your imagination running away from you, whatever it is. Look at what happened to Troy. If you read later in the book, weird stuff started happening to him. I can't remember if we talked about that, but he makes a confession. It's like, yeah, I, I didn't know what to think other than, again, I agree with his position that this goes beyond normal diagnoses of mental illness either, you know, if you, if you take it one at a time or grouped together, one of our other quotes here is not one or several morbidities could explain everything that was testified to as happening in this story. And that's where Troy ends up. It's like, this goes beyond. Something did happen that's extraordinary. And that's maybe the best adjective you can use. But something extraordinary out of the realm of normal behavior of people with mental conditions, because we see that all the time. And so does uh, Western medicine. They, they, they chart these things. I'm not sure how they'd take this if Ronnie was doing this under a laboratory condition. So who knows? But Troy, as he says in his book, things started disappearing. Uh, there's some aportation that happened. Uh, items that he was looking at would end up in strange places. Chapters of the book he was writing would somehow disappear on his computer and end up in other folders on his computer. Totally unrelated. And he writes, I wasn't imagining this. I'm of sound mind. I just know that a bunch of weird stuff was happening while I was still researching this. And then kind of when I was done, when I finished the book, it went away because I felt that chapter closed, literally. When we tried to post part two of this series, it didn't appear on the Apple 
podcast platform. First time in 220 episodes. It just didn't <laughs> show up there. And it took three days of work to get it to appear there. So. Right. Well, and there you go. Who Maybe that's coincidence. But what I will say is that would you specifically remember putting an item on your desk and then it ends up in a cabinet in the kitchen, either you're sleepwalking or something else did that. And so I, I tended to also believe Troy when he says, no, a bunch of weird stuff happened. It, it was freaky. I didn't believe in, you know, I wasn't looking for it, but I will tell you that I know what happened and a bunch of weird stuff happened in connection to this story. As we'll see here also, something else happened. Final thought on this for me, it's like most every story we cover where the truth lies depends on what you're willing to believe because it's all personal. It's all about belief. When it comes to belief and reality and truth, we all have that bridge we're unwilling to cross. Well, folks, if this wasn't Astonishing Legends, I would say the show is over, but you know what? It's <laughs> not because there's an aftermath to the story of this exorcism in St. Louis. And that aftermath unfolds in the house that Ronnie Hunkler's exorcism actually started in. And our good friend Dave Glover has joined us to talk about an experience that he had there along with some listeners of his radio show in 2008. So we're going to play that now and then we'll take you out to the end of our series on the true story behind the exorcism that inspired the movie and the book, The Exorcist. Hi, I'm Anna, and when I'm not looking for the lost children of Hamlin, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. All right, folks, we are here with Dave Glover, who has been instrumental not only in us producing this entire series, but also providing us some of the best audio we've ever gotten. Dave, welcome to Astonishing Legends. Yeah, great to be here, guys. Thank you so much. You've had us on your show so many times, it's the least we can do. Um, right. We did talk about the Sally House. That, and then they did a, a remote from the Sally House as well and had an experience there also. Yeah, a very compelling experience about with regarding Dave's brother and everything. That was a pretty great story, by the way. So I've done 20 Halloween shows now. I started my show in 2000. And I based my Halloween show on the ghost of Mr. Chicken from Don yes. Knox. It went well, and I've done 20 of them now. And in 20 years, the number one answer or question I get is, have you had paranormal things happen to you? And I've only had two. We've had great shows. You've picked up EVPs. It's been a lot of fun. One was the Sally House, who you're talking about with my brother. And the other was at the Exorcist House. And just a quick background. I've been trying to get into the Exorcist House for years. This was 2008. And a guy named Nick lived there and he didn't know me from Adam and he was not interested. And finally, Nick started listening to my show and he reached out to me and said, hey, if you still want to come, you can bring some guys. So we did. And it was a beautiful October evening. And we got there just before the sunset. And I went into the house and I went to the room I thought was Roland's room. And I thought, this is a big bunch of nothing. This looks like my bedroom. And Nick, the owner said, well, that's my room. And he takes me back to the exorcist room, which was vanishingly tiny, you know, eight by 10, 10 by 10, dark wood floors, dark walls. And I remember the first thing that hit me was, how did two or three priests and a dad and an uncle and Roland occupy this space? Right. If you're just sitting there doing nothing, much less with everything that was going on. 
So Tony Colombo from my show, who you guys know, yes. setting up with me. And you know how with an upstairs, you have like a, a little landing area. And I heard Tony say my name. He said, hey, Dave. And I walked out there and Tony wasn't there. And you can look out the back window and see the backyard. And everyone from my team was back there, including Tony. There is literally no one in the house. It was not just a voice. It was Tony's voice who said my name. And so that in addition to the Sally House, the only paranormal thing that's ever happened. Wow. So, And that's something that we've talked about before with EVPs, where, and a lot of times it's after the investigation, the investigators get back and they're going through their audio and they hear people's voices that they know were not in the room where the microphones were. They are either offside or outside or whatever, and it, not just talking, but also laughing, emotional responses. And they'll be like, that's Kelly's laugh. But Kelly wasn't there. She wasn't even with us that week or whatever, that kind of thing. Yeah, we picked up a lot of EVPs in the 20 years I've been doing paranormal stuff. But that's the only time I've heard something with my natural ears that I couldn't explain. And it just scared the hell out of me. The other interesting thing was we had a priest who uh, used to do, I have a segment of my show, it's called The Priest and the Rabbi. And so the priest back then came to do a blessing. And so if you can imagine, me and my team and the priest are upstairs in Roland's room holding hands, and he's doing a prayer. And it was a terrible prayer. Uh, he was just so distracted. And halfway through, he stopped, and he said, I can't do this. Some terrible, terrible things happened in this room, and he left. And, and we knew him really well. He was a very good friend of ours, still is. And as he was walking down the sidewalk to leave to get in his car, I shouted at him, and I said, hey, you can't be possessed if you're a Christian, right? And he didn't even look backwards. He waved his hand and said, of course you can. And he got in his car and he left. So that was the start of the night. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Was he aware of the history of the house? He was. Yeah. He knew okay. where he was and he knew what he was doing. And he is not a flaky guy at all. He couldn't even finish the prayer. He, he literally walked out on us. What was Nick's disposition about the house that was living in the house? How did he feel about it? So... I am a showman and I'm putting on a show. And when I brought my listeners in with me, we blindfolded them and we brought them in and it's kind of douchey, but I had a big screen television and I was playing the exorcist. And so we take their, their blindfolds off. One girl freaks out and left, but everyone else is like, oh my God, it's the exorcist house. When I left that night, Nick was watching the exorcist on his television. Okay. He was, I think he was an atheist, maybe an agnostic. And he, it didn't bother him at all. He knew exactly what house it was. He knew what had happened. And he said that it never cost him a minute's sleep. Okay. So he didn't have any strange or bizarre events to report either. Not that he related to us, no. Okay. Mm -hmm. So getting back to that, let's, I, I do want to set this up a little bit because I was, we were reading Troy's book. Let, let me ask you a question. Are you aware that Troy revised his book in the fourth edition and came out with the name of the boy? Yeah, only from listening to your first segment of, on this. Of, yeah, right. So I just want to tell our listeners that when Dave says Roland, he is talking about one of the pseudonyms for Ronnie Huckler. So that's it's the same guy, just so everybody knows. And I'm actually not surprised the room was smaller because he was a guest. It was Doris and Leonard's house, his uncle, aunt and uncle's house, and they were putting him up, right? So they, it seems like they might have had him in a guest bedroom. So that's interesting. But then to think about all those folks in there in a room that small, it's like a storage unit. That is crazy. Yes. And I've been, you know, even the Sally House is spooky as can be, but nothing has ever, ever compared to this. And okay. as you guys know, I'm, I'm an agnostic and I'm a skeptic and I've done lots of a lot of paranormal stuff and certainly things I can't explain. But I've never been somewhere 
that just felt that wrong. And one of the really terrifying things about that house, because I went back and I did a discovery, I think it was, television show called Exorcism Live back in about 2014. I got to go there again. It's the most normal looking house you've ever seen. I mean, it's in a little bedroom community in Bel Nor, about three wood away from University of Missouri, St. Louis. And if you drove past it, you'd never look twice, which makes it somehow even more horrifying. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this incident because Troy talked about this in his book and and I think you invited him there. I believe it was you that invited him anyway to come this night and witness this, but he was there during this particular incident that you have shared some audio clips with us. Can you tell us a little bit about how the listeners, was this a contest or something that they got in? You lured them there. They had no idea where they were going. You brought them in, the blindfolds off. They see the movie on the big screen TV. How did the part leading up to that unfold? So first few years of me doing the Halloween show, we would have typically six listeners and we would get thousands of submissions. You know, hey, I want to go on your next adventure and I love the spooky stuff. But none of them knew that they were going to the exorcist house. And so we got there and we took off the blindfolds. They see the movie. They put it together pretty quickly. I remember one girl in particular immediately just sort of losing it. And she actually left. We had to take her back to the station. So. Typically, my move on these Halloween shows is to take everyone on a tour, do the history, lather them up, get them real good and scared, and then put them in rooms by themselves and mic them up and have a camera on them and just hope that something happens. I don't want to get the cart before the horse, but everyone who went in that room, none of them lasted very long. Every one of them had things happen. A lot of times it's just boring. You know, you go to some Scooby-Doo house and nothing happens. You got to make a show out of it. We were supposed to be at the exorcist house all night. And I think I was home by 11 p.m. just because so much stuff happened and it was so horrible. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, what I'd like to do is I have a clip of this first girl, which honestly, it's it's bone chilling. And I, I was going to maybe play that. It's only about three minutes long, just to, to refresh your memory on it. Well, just to set this up so the listeners know what's happening here, the contest is that they have to go into, and I believe it was Ronnie's cousin Neil, that was his bedroom. And they shared the bedroom for a while until stuff started happening. And then, and then it was just Ronnie's bedroom. So they have to go into the bedroom here, which has been stripped down as Troy Taylor says and describes it. The room is being remodeled. So the carpet's ripped up. The walls have been scraped. It's basically just one chair in the center of this tiny bedroom. And the contest is that people have to go in there and sit for at least an hour. And whoever doesn't chicken out wins a prize. Mm -hmm. And you guys were all, you were completely out of the building when you said, we're leaving you alone. Everyone left the house to the garage or something or to a production vehicle or? Yeah, we had everything set up in the backyard. It's just like a normal neighborhood backyard. And we had all of the technical stuff in the backyard. And for insurance purposes, we couldn't have like a Confederate in there or something or someone pulling levers or pushing buttons. And so we were all in the back listening. We could hear what was going on and we could see it through the camera. But that was it. And when we get to the girl, the lady that really freaked out, I really want to take some time with that story because... That's probably top 10 moments in my life. I mean, as far as just seeing something happen that affected me. And one more thing, just so people know what the setup is, this person sitting in the chair in the room, you have cameras on them and you are all headquartered in the detached garage. So you can no, see in the them, backyard, in the backyard, in the backyard, yeah. right in the backyard. However, you can't hear them. Now, why is the reason that well, there's no mics or any kind of No, he of, can hear uh, them. Audio? They can't hear Dave's team. 
So right. it's a okay. one way, it's okay. a one way. Right. Line. That's what I was trying to express yeah. is that the person is there. They they're basically by themselves, but you were able to monitor them with video and audio, correct? Correct. And what I told them, since it's a radio show, um, I said, just talk your way through it. Just keep talking. And it was so interesting to hear what they said and what their strategy was. Each one had a different strategy. But typically within like the first one or two minutes, the strategy was out and they were seeing things and hearing things that got really active. Okay. And can I say this too? We were talking, Scott, the other day about how both of us sometimes worry that we have poked the bear too many times. Yeah. And I sometimes just shake my head at how arrogant I was in 2008 to walk into the exorcist house and put on a show and have people blindfolded and have the movie running. I wouldn't do that in a million years now. But yeah. back then I was new at this and just full of it. And yeah, that sends a chill up my spine sometimes. Yeah, I think about that too. And I always say, if we ever go back to the Sally house, it'll just be forest. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. not me, God, it's not going to be me. And that's the thing is I'm I'm fine with this, even after reading these chilling accounts and, and they are For pretty now chilling. Are. Well, your interest overrides it. And I just want to set up one, one thought here before this actually happened is when you invited Troy Taylor over to kind of be the, the the ghost guy to give the history of the place to the contestants before they started. And of course, he's excited because he tried to get in in 2005. That person, of course, the realtor, was uh, got angry that he was even asking about it, denied everything that didn't happen there. Now this is 2008. So he's, of course, researched this for decades. He's really excited to be able to get in the house. And that's why he makes the drive to St. Louis but I liked his attitude in that, you know, we always describe him as he's very neutral and open, has a scholarly approach, doesn't rule anything out, but he wasn't expecting anything. To him, this is just a historical location. He just wants to see it. He's not expecting anything. And then what he describes, and maybe we'll have you elaborate from your perspective, is that he freezes before he can even get into the bedroom, and he doesn't know why. He's not expecting anything, and certainly this cold cocked him. Is that the first instance that you noticed something's up, even with this guy who's pretty agnostic about this story? Yeah, I hadn't remembered that until you brought it up right before we went on the air. But now I remember that. I remember him being very affected. And, you know, you guys have met Troy. He is, He's exactly that. He's a scholar. Yeah. And great guy, really open, but he's just like bringing an encyclopedia. Yeah. Not like a real person. He just knows so much stuff. And to see him react like a real person was, yeah, kind of scary even to me. Yeah, and that attitude that he describes is identical to the one I had at the Sally House, which sets you up almost like a target. If you believe any of this at all, if there's anything going on, it's a lot of times that's when, you know, it's like our, our friend Richard Haddam says, you noticed them and they noticed that you noticed them kind of situation. Right, <laughs> right. And he, he wasn't scoffing at it. He just wasn't, he was very neutral. He yeah, wasn't well, he was, but that's, that's how I felt in the Sally House. I was like, oh, yeah, I believe the original stories, but that was the 90s. This is just right. a tourist thing now. And right. it's a musty old house. And then one other thing that he says uh, you took notice of in his book was, he holds out his arm and he says, look at the hair standing up on my arm. It's almost like he walked into a static electrical field. And did you see that? Do you remember that? Yeah, I, I do remember that. And literally everyone on my team, because we had done seven shows before this. And so we were, you know, we had our sea legs about us. We get it. And pretty much from the first 15 minutes, everything was different. And it was really survival. I mean, I'm a pretty good showman and I'm pretty good at pacing and okay now we're gonna do this and then we're gonna do this and and it was just chaos 
it really was just like going by the seat of your pants because I had planned on being there all night. And so each one of these people are going to spend an hour in the room. And I don't think anyone spent more than 10 minutes. So the first thing I'm thinking is I'm not even sure I have a show because we're going to be out of here in an hour. But it ended up being quite a show. Yeah. Well, you were so uh, gracious as to provide us some clips from that show. So I wanted to play one of them here and then maybe talk about it on the back end. I'm mostly just playing this to refresh your memory on it. We can talk about it here in a second if that sounds good to you. I will ask you to do things, quite frankly, I wouldn't do. I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it for $100,000. Um, before we go further, because I can't make you do anything you don't want to do, and I wouldn't want to do that, especially this is this is no kidding around stuff. This isn't a spook house. It's not a haunted house. This is the exorcist house. And it's the first time anyone's walked in here in 60 years to do this. Anyone want out? Can any, did anyone feel like they can't do this? Matt? No, I'm good. You're right? Yeah. Kelly? I can't. You can't do it? I'm really sorry. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong. This is so embarrassing. I don't even believe in this stuff, but the second I walked in this door, I just... Okay, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Something really bad is going to happen to you, my team. Come here. Come here. Come here. Just talk to her, tell her what yeah. you're feeling. It's okay. Oh, it's sorry. Okay. It's okay. Don't, don't be embarrassed. Okay. You're all right. I don't it's even the house. I don't... It's the house. But I just think this stuff is ridiculous. And no, then it just... it's not. It's not. <sighs> it's okay. You're okay. All right? <laughs> okay? You're protected. Okay? You're protected. Yeah. It's the house. Kelly, yeah. Kelly when did you right? start feeling it's okay. that? Okay. You know, I... I, uh... I... Only when I was, like, walking in the door... And, like, I didn't even know. I thought that there would be more steps or something, you know, to get in the house. And so I didn't even think I was in the house. And then, like, it just sort of, like, it was like this cold wash. And uh, I just figured I was just being nervous, you know, like adrenaline or something. And so it was like a cold wash that just, like, God, there's something in that upstairs that just, mm-hmm. like, okay. it made me feel like I was going to throw up or something. And I just, I just yeah, you just. That when we walked out, oh, God, it was just like that very, um. You know, like a, like you can't even explain it. Like it's just, I and I'm just okay. like nervous. Can you feel it from a certain house. part of the house? Well, God, it's like, and that's what I thought was so weird. It was like, um, like when you know something's there, but I've never seen this. I've never been here. Like, there's something. I just felt like I can't, I can't go in there. I can't. Yeah, it's, it's his house. As soon as he said go in that room, I was like, no way. If I go in there, like, there's just, oh God, I just don't think I, I would just lose it couple of things. First of all, Andrew, is he a producer for you? Yes. Who sent us these clips to tell him we said thank you. He did point out when they came that they were all married together. He didn't have any splits. So we do have some sound effects and that clearly the theme from Halo is in the background there. But, still, <laughs> <laughs> but it's still, I love it though. That is as scared as I have ever personally heard anyone sound on anything. Like, I mean, she was petrified. Yeah, she wasn't the most scared that night. Believe yeah. it or not, yeah. a couple of the other people, especially this one lady, I will get you the video of all of this. So okay. you can see, you can post the video of, okay. was her name Kelly there? Yeah, that was Kelly. And I also have Kristen or Kirsten maybe and Matt. Yeah. 
that was the first five minutes we were in the house when, wow. when Kelly had that breakdown. So that's how the night started. <laughs> was there any incentive for these folks to like, were you giving away money or anything? Or is this just for the experience of it? Just for the experience. Yeah, no okay. one wins anything. It was simply to go along with the DGS and go to a haunted house. And uh, of course, none of them expected the exorcist house. And, and I think we we really only made that deal. I say deal. We didn't pay Nick anything, the owner, but we only really were given permission about two weeks ahead of time. So it all came together really quickly. Right. Okay. It sounds like there's another female producer trying to comfort Kelly and she makes reference to there's another woman who can explain what's going on. You're protected. Don't worry. Who is this other person that she's referring to? Yeah. So one of my cast members, her name is Katie Cruz. And then uh, Vicki Maine is a psychic medium who's been on most of my ghost hunts, Halloween shows with me. And so Katie was the first woman you hear comforting her. And then Vicky was the one who stepped in and tried to say, you're protected and it's just the house and don't worry about it. And we tried, not very hard, my memory is we tried to get Kelly to stay, but she was just done. And so some promotions people drove her back to the studio. Okay. So then between these next two clips where you had Kirsten and Matt, who was next to try and go in there? I think it was Matt. Yeah. Matt was a real big guy. I can see him in my mind, you know, 6'3", big dude, big, you know, man's man, burly guy, really cool guy. I met him a few times after the Exorcist house. He would come to my events and introduce himself again. And we'll listen to the clip. But my memory is that Matt is the one who is seeing people walk back and forth and someone was jiggling the door handle. Right. And that should be in the audio. So people should listen carefully for yeah. like thumping knocking in the walls yeah i don't know what i'm expecting or what i'm looking for i thought i just heard something i don't know if somebody's still in the house it sounded like something slid well that's got to be somebody just leaving the house because that sounded like a big, something fell. Well, I hope that was somebody leaving the house. I can see the flicker of the candles under the door. The candle in the corner is still going. That's good. I don't think I'd want to be in here in the dark. I know I can't hear you guys, but you guys, somebody's still in the house, right? Right? Uh, I know I can't hear you, but... I'm gonna put the chair back by the wall. Keep my back to the wall. <laughs> oh. See, again, is my mind playing tricks on me, or am I actually... I really wanna know what the hell that is. I didn't hear it before the whole time we were walking around. Standing close to the air duct to see if I can hear anything. It's not coming from outside. Maybe it's my heart beating. Again, playing tricks on myself. Somebody out there? It's hot as hell in here.
Hello? Oh, is there somebody on the other side of this door? It really sounded like somebody touched the door handle. See, now I'm sweating, but I'm shaking. Almost as if I'm hot and cold. I'm just shaking from my nerves. Hello? Hello? Can I open the door? I think there's somebody. There's nobody's in here. That's really going to freak me out. outside the whole time? Yeah. We could, we could hear you, though. We, when you said there's someone outside the door, we came in. I mean, there's... It sounded more like it was right outside the door. Like I said, it, it almost sounded like someone right outside the door right. Uh, was was dragging something across the floor. Um, a, a box or, or, or something. Um, uh, again, then my mind starts going crazy and racing, and, and uh, if I am I playing tricks on myself, so there were pauses where I was trying. Did you hear something else? You guys didn't hear it? No. I just heard that sound again. Same sound? That same sound. And it, sound, it sounded like it, it came from behind me this way, by the door. Anybody over What's that? Is that a closet? That's good. Been in there. No. I'm not opening it. Is that about where you heard it from? It came from this direction. I mean, I, I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything, but everyone else. It was pretty. It was pretty. To me, it was pretty plain as day. See now, see, see now again, all I'm doing is trying to listen. One thing I want to clarify there is when you say we're right outside, it sounds like you're saying right outside the door, but you, when you meant all the way in the backyard. Yes. So whatever he thought he was hearing right outside the door, you guys were not in there. And there's, I think there's an edit that makes it seem like you came in kind of quick because yes. it's bad radio to wait for you to walk into the house. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. Right. So so I wanted to be clear to the listeners that you weren't right out there just and then you opened the door and came in when he got freaked out. No, no, no. He was in there for a while. And there are other parts where I remember him saying that someone was, you could see the doorknob moving. And my memory is, I could be wrong, but my memory is it was one of those classic glass door handles. And uh, I remember Matt saying very distinctly, he saw it move backwards and, you know, left to right, left to right. And we were all together to make sure that we could all say like, no, we were all together. Outside, I was listening on the headphones. And then when things would get too out of hand, I would make the call like, let's go. And then Jim, who was one of my producers, who was the cameraman, uh, would follow me into the house. We'd go up the stairs. We would go into the room. Then we would interview them. So that's the part you're hearing with Matt. Right. And so that's crazy. While he's standing there trying to tell you what happened, he heard something again that you did not hear and you were right there. 
Yes, yes. Which plays to something we've talked about a billion times about like not everyone hears it, but sometimes more than one person will hear something, but still others won't hear anything in the same environment. Yes, and all five of my contestants, each one of them had experiences. No one just sat there bored. We had to go in and get each of them. None of them made the time, but none of them heard the same thing. They all heard different things. And the time was supposed to be an hour. About an hour, yeah. I was banking, I told them an hour because I wanted them to be uncomfortable, which sounds ridiculous when you're putting them in the exorcist room. But I was new at this. And I figured I'd go in at about 30 minutes. I just had no idea that they were going to react the way that they did. No, and I, I think that's a safe bet because we all know we've been to haunted places and people think that immediately, well, it's it's billed to be this haunted something's going to happen. And most of the time it doesn't. Most of the time you're, it's, it's like you said, it's boring. You, you could wait. It's like watching people fish, you know, it's like, <laughs> or worse, listening to them fishing. Uh, so there's, there's nothing going on. So usually, you know, that's a safe bet, but what are some of the other places that you've been for your Halloween shows and what typically do you experience there? So the first one was at the Limp Mansion, L-E-M-P, right. which you probably heard of. It's one of the Life magazine 20 years ago said it was the most haunted place in America. And it's complete Scooby-Doo. I mean, it couldn't yeah. look more like a haunted house, <laughs> haunted mansion. And then we did uh, the McPike Mansion in Alton, also a very well-known place. Troy's written a book about that, I'm sure. The Mineral Springs Hotel in Alton, which was, Troy was there for that one too. And that one was a great show. And then we've done several just uh, individuals who would ride into the show and say, hey, my house is haunted. And we'd go out and do a site check and we would think there's enough going on. And then we would go do the show there. I, I need to tell you guys a story before I forget it. And you can use this or not use it. But this was early on in my career. I had not been to the exorcist house yet, but I had done the Father Halloran interview. And a woman sent me a carbon copy of about an eight page letter cursive that her uncle had given her when he died. And the story was that he worked at the Alexian Brothers Hospital, which is where part of the exorcism happened, probably 20 years after in the 60s. And one of his men was changing a light bulb outside this room. And he came to this woman's uncle, the supervisor, and said, I quit. There's something growling in that room. He called him like a pansy or a sissy. And he went and he changed the light bulb. And he heard the growling and the growling said his name. And he wrote this longhand in this letter that was to be given to her upon his death. She got it. And then when I started talking about the exorcist, she sent me a copy. And that was one of the scariest parts of it to me personally, because the way she described her uncle, he was just like this World War II hard hat Joe, straight edge, straight arrow, who would have never, ever. And I mean, obviously, he wanted to wait until his death to even say that this happened. But I just remembered that story and wanted to share it with you guys. And this would have been, though, to clarify, this would have been after everything had already transpired and the room was just locked up. Yeah, probably 20 years. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, there is a story that Troy relays in the book when they're demolishing, I think, the psychiatric ward of the of the hospital. The fifth floor. The Alexian Brothers Hospital. Yes. And there was the, the room that was always locked and sealed and no one went in there. That's where they kept the diary, I believe, that no one was supposed to look at. However, there was a carbon copy of that one made, and that's how we know about it. But there's a story that, uh, and I highlighted it here, according to crew members who work for the Department of Transportation and were on hand for 
the demolition, something was seen emerging from the room just moments before the wrecking ball claimed it. Whatever it was, the men likened it to a cat or a big rat or something. Yeah, I've heard that story myself. Okay. Wow. To us, it's like the uh, uh, Waverly where there's a some kind of entity known as the creeper. And it's not human form. It's more like an animal that darts and juts around in the shadows. There's something like also that. Also on the ceiling, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. But, but something that calls your name and that we've talked about this before that gets your attention. So the question leading back to the first thing you told us, when you heard your producer call out your name in his own voice, did you get a sense that this was possibly like a paranormal echo or did this thing want to get your attention? Did it know you were there? Yeah. Again, I'm an agnostic. I'm a skeptic. I will take a lie detector test and say only twice in 20 years did I experience something. But what I experienced there was completely 100% normal. One of my best friends and closest castmates saying my name and then him not being there. So I felt like it was paranormal and I felt like whatever did it, did it on purpose because it was Tony's voice and it was my name and it wasn't disembodied. It wasn't like there was effects on it. He didn't whisper it weird. He sort of has a voice like mine. He just goes, hey, Dave. And I walked out there. No one was there. I looked out the window and there he is. All right. So I just have to, I, I totally believe this story from top to bottom, but I know our listeners are going to ask. You were in there with the production crew. Did you have an earpiece in? No, we hadn't hooked anything up. This was literally when we just walked in. Okay. And so I wasn't mic'd up. I didn't have a lavalier. I didn't have anything. There were people rummaging around the house with me because I would not have been in that house alone had I known I was in that house alone. But it's just one of those things. We went into the exorcist room. They walked out. I just assumed they were still with me in the house. But unbeknownst to me, they had all gone out, set everything up outside. And so what happened just happened between me and the house. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. So here's what I'd like to do, Dave. I'd like to play this last clip from the listener that went in the house. This is this. I said Kirsten before. It's Kristen. The, the clip is named Kristen anyway. So I'm going to play this for you guys and we can talk about it afterwards here. We can hear you, and we're downstairs and out the door. Okay. Okay? All right. Our Father and Lord, we're not the king. The kingdom come, they will be done. Just sitting here, and so far, I don't know if I have myself creeped out. Um, I'm telling myself that's what it is. Um, I am going to move the chair back, though, to the wall. Just feel better. So, it's a room and a house in St. Louis, in the neighborhood. Um, my heart is beating 
Like, I feel like it's going to come out through my throat. Um, and I'm very hot. I don't know if it's the candles, but I do see um, a shadow under the door. I'm really shaky, and I can't stop shaking. Um, and I'm not going to make it eight minutes in this room. I just can't stop shaking. My elbows ache. I don't know what that is. Like my joints. Um, and that light by the door just keeps, I mean, it's not a flickering. It's going out and on and out and on. And that's knocking again. Like in the stairwell. Just a knocking. And I'm sweating now. It's so hot. Room in a house in a neighborhood. shaking and I was just like did you feel anything else I was so hot I mean just like dripping but now it's gone she got pretty upset (laughs) yeah I'm feeling like a real a-hole here (laughs) (laughs) well yeah, did you, you did you have any medical staff? Uh, I mean, you wouldn't expect you'd need any uh, no. a paramedic person. So if I live to be 100, I will never forget this. So we're outside, and I'm listening on the headphones, and, and I hear what you hear. And we go running up the stairs, and I open the door. And I, I want to be clear on this. I'm not saying that Kristen's face was actually contorted, but... I have now seen pure terror in someone's face because she's a very pretty young woman and her face looked different. She was so terrified that it scared the hell out of me. Like I'm walking into the exorcist room and nothing scares me more than the exorcist and Reagan and her face from the movie. And Kristen didn't look like that, but she didn't look like the girl we put in the room. And so that freaked me out. And hopefully, uh, by the time this airs, you guys will have video of this. 
and your listeners can look at it and judge for themselves. But what happened on the video was that, first of all, we were outside listening. And I remember saying to Jim when she was doing the whole, I'm in a room in a house in a suburb. I'm like, if we're going to make a horror film, she would be great. (laughs) I mean, that was so creepy. Saying the Lord's Prayer and this little mantra she had, it was so creepy. But on the video, what you see is she's doing this. And then if you picture that we're looking straight at her, the candle is behind her. To the right is a window. And to the left is an interior wall. From the left, which would be her right, you see a black mist probably about the size of a person's torso, go toward her, behind her, when it gets to the candle, and it's just a normal candle, like an eight inch, you know, tall, thin candle, the flame shoots up. There's no question about it. There's no maybe, maybe not. As soon as the black mass gets over the candle, the candle shoots up. You see the mass continue across the room and either stop at the wall, go out the wall, out the window, something, but that's what happened. She screams at the exact moment that the candle goes woof behind her. So she can't see it. She didn't see the mist. We didn't see anything. She knew something was happening. It all happened at the same time. And so, again, I will get you this video, and hopefully your listeners are watching it as we're speaking. But it all happened simultaneously. Black mass hits the candle. Candle goes woof. She starts screaming. Black mass goes out the, out the room. And about... 20 seconds later, we come into the room. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It was truly, truly amazing. This is something that both she and Matt said they felt really hot. What was the temperature like in the house? Was it, it's October at this point, but it was a warm day, right? It was normal. It was real, real normal. All I remember about it is it was a very pretty day and there's nothing about the house that really stood out at all. It's not the heat, it wasn't too cold, wasn't too hot. It was decorated in a normal way. It wasn't like, you know, it, it was just, it couldn't have been more normal. And then the next question I have is about people keep talking, sitting in the chair, keep talking about lights. There seem to be shadows from underneath the door that they can see. So the door is closed. What's the lighting like? Is There's a candle in the room with them and one out in the hallway or the landing? Yeah, if you picture, so the candle is behind them. And then there's a camera set up on the floor, probably five feet in front of them, looking up at them. Mm -hmm. And then to their right is the door out. And that's where the landing is. And it's not a big house. I'm going to guess it's 2,400 square feet. Right where the window is, you would look out from the landing into the backyard, we had a candle. And so there's a light source out there. I'm sure the candle was flickering. That's what candles do. But it's a good 15 feet away from where she's sitting. And they kept saying that it wasn't flickering. They were seeing someone walk back and forth. And that's because there was a light behind it. They kept seeing someone. And they were, as you can hear, convinced that it was us, not in the house, but right outside the door in the landing. And then when Kristen heard that, and I just remember her saying this later, she said it sounded like something the size of a body. Like if someone just jumped or fell onto the floor right outside the door. Obviously, the microphone, nothing picked it up, and we didn't hear anything, and we didn't see anything, because we could, my memory is we could see in that window from where we, our vantage point in the backyard. It's not like we were alerted to something like, oh my God, are you seeing these shadows? It, it's something they were experiencing. That was it. And so, Dave, you didn't opt to spend some time yourself in the room, I take it. I haven't in 20 years, and I don't <laughs> plan to. I'm a giant chicken. It would be good for the show. We just finished our 20th 
Halloween show. We did it at Jefferson Barracks in, in uh, St. Louis, which was a uh, military outpost, still is. Tons of ghost stories. And I thought, this is the year I'm going to do it. And I chickened out again, and I didn't do it. So it was really cool. We were the first team to ever get in there and the last team because they had some sort of a government rule that you couldn't do a ghost hunt because oh. it was a violation of church and state. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so then a new guy took over and they said, well, that's silly. And they gave him permission and the guy was a fan of my show. And next thing you know, we're doing the show there. Oh, wow. I want to check that out. I have not heard that. Yeah, I'll send it to you. Excellent. Good stuff. Did anybody notice any strange smells? That's one thing that stood out to me, which to recap what you're saying earlier you may not believe any of this in that Ronnie Hunkler uh, in 1949 was having an extreme mental illness episode and doing all sorts of crazy behaviors, but there's things that go beyond that. And to me, it's like, you know, he's urinating all over the place, like a gallons, much more so than a human being can do. And we've, of course, if you have ch children or pets, you've, of course, been around that smell before. But it was so acrid that they thought they were going to pass out, that they had to open the windows. Of course, as you said, now a very tiny room. For me at the Sally House, the, really the only thing that was kind of odd or creepy was mostly the, the really stale smell to it. Did you or your crew notice anything that smelled bad or uh, was anything out of the ordinary with the other senses? I don't remember that. I think I would remember that if it happened. Everyone was very creeped out. Everyone had different experiences. And that, these are just my listeners. But I had my producer, my associate producer, Katie, who we, we mentioned earlier, Vicki, a guy named Dr. Michael Lynch, who's pretty well known in the paranormal world. And everyone was, it was just like from the time we walked in and the priest left, it just never stopped. There, it, it wasn't like normal ghost hunts that I've done where it's like eight hours of boredom and 20 minutes of excitement and, hey, we got a show. It was just from the very beginning, it was just on. But I don't remember the smells. No, I don't remember smells. But out of all the places you've been now doing your Halloween show or just personally anywhere, this is the most extreme reactions you've ever gotten. Yeah, not even a close second. We, we've had a lot of great shows, a lot of great EVPs, people feeling things, people think they're being touched. Nothing comes close to what we got at the exorcist house and nothing comes close to just my own personal experience. I am not ashamed to tell you that I shed some tears later that night. I think it was just a big adrenaline dump. And I got home and I was telling my family what had happened. And when I started talking about Kristen and her face and the way it looked, I just kind of lost it for a few minutes. It was really, really emotional on, on all of us. Wow. I sensed it myself. It's even if you don't believe in any of this, as I was saying earlier, this is just a, a mental health issue with Ronnie and that these people, their imaginations were going wild. They realized it was the exorcist house, their adrenaline and emotions start ramping up. It doesn't matter what you believe. Hearing that in such raw terror, as you said, that is disturbing. It's disturbing to hear. It's disturbing to them, and, and you don't often see it. So if you're looking at Ronnie going through this or just these people having fun with a Halloween radio show, it's raw. It really gets to your, your core, and it's disturbing. And seeing that on her face, I can understand what you're talking about when you say her face was just changed because that's extreme. Yeah, I'm a gigantic supporter of the military and veterans because I never served a day myself. So I don't know what it's like to be under fire or to see someone who you're in a platoon with get hurt. But 
that's my only analogy is what I saw in Kristen's face was absolute, abject, pure terror. And it went right through me. When we got her downstairs, we got her calmed down. I just said, that's it. I'm going home. This, we're done. And we packed up and we left. And I'll never forget it. Never forget it. Driving away and looking one last look at the house. And the owner was in there watching the Exorcist movie. <laughs> You just can't make that up. <laughs> yeah, that is that is crazy. The psychic medium that you had there, is it is it Vicki Main or Vicki Lynch? Yes, Vicki Main, M-A-I-N. And then Dr. Michael Lynch was with me for years and years and years. He's a paranormal investigator and kind of an OG. Like when I met mm-hmm. the guys from Ghost Hunters back 15 years ago, I mentioned him and they just lost their mind. They're like, oh my God, he's you know, he's the original dude. But yeah, they were they were with me in most of my investigations. Did Vicky, as a psychic, pick up any impressions of what was there in the house still? Like, what was what was that missed? What's what's haunting that place? Well, you know, when we, we have a file, which I don't think you heard for us, and that was one other question I wanted to ask, and we're going to let you go, Dave. You've, you've been so generous mm-hmm. with your time. But we did have the file about that Andrew said that was a dowsing session where these questions mm. were asked and answered that, you know, it was a five or six minute thing. And it sounded like the answers to the questions were that whatever was at least gathered through dowsing was it had nothing to do with the house. It didn't have to do with the exorcism. It did. Do you, do you remember anything about that information that was exchanged? Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's been 13 years and it wasn't like the, the real, you know, kind of money shot of the show. But I remember them talking about a vortex and talking about if, if you look at the house, I believe even to this day, I don't know what kind of tree it is, but it's the real tall, skinny ones. There are like three of them on each side of the lawn. And, and oddly, they all point in toward the house. And I remember when I, was, when I was taping this television show, them making a big deal out of how creepy that was. But it is the quintessence of mundane horror. It looks exactly like every other house on the block. And yet you kind of feel like you could pick it out. Right. And so they talked about there being a vortex and that other spirits and entities are attracted to it because this is sort of like the Super Bowl of what has happened to humanity. Uh, You know, the most well-known haunting slash possession. And so that attracts other entities to it. That's, I think, was kind of their final conclusion. We've heard some of the same analysis about the Sally House, by the way, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, we want to thank you so, so much for taking the time, for sending us the clips, for coming on the show, taking time to sit down with us tonight. I mean, I know the last thing you want to do when you get home is do more radio. So thank you so much, (laughs) honestly. No, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. I was driving home from a lacrosse tournament a couple weeks ago, listening to episode one. And, you know, I, I really thought I knew about as much about this story as anyone did. And I've learned so much. And I appreciate you saying the stuff that that has been debunked or, you know, everyone thinks this is true, but it's not. That's so valuable because this is one of the most believable, difficult to impossible to dismiss kind of cases. And having just bullcrap out there doesn't help anything. So thank you, yes. guys. Before you go, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you online if they want to if they want to enjoy your show? Yeah, I do the Dave Glover show. Uh, this is my 22nd year of doing it. I spent uh, 20 years over at 97.1 FM Talk, and I just made the move to KMOX, which is 1120 AM, uh, 98.7 FM, or you can listen to it on the Odyssey app, and you can stream it or download it. Uh, a lot of people like to podcast it across the country, and I think you'll like the show. I don't think they're ever going to say a word about it. I think they will never say whether it was or it wasn't. You and I know it. We were there.
Father Bowden to Walter Halloran. That's going to wrap up tonight's show. We're dark next week, but we'll be back the week after that with a new episode. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. And if there are any ghosts out there, please contact me. Contact me. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and Brandon Schexnader. The show is co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>